Hi there, this is Dominic Keating. I played Malcolm Reed, particularly on Star Trek Enterprise. And you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that will never be spoken of again by anyone when it's over. We promise. I'm your host, Craig, and we're here to discuss Star Trek Discovery Season 2, the second half. So we did the first half and promised we'd do a second half, and then here we are. Although there's still time for the recording to be lost in some great hard drive catastrophe, which is fitting because maybe some of the season is about trying to delete some data that you can't delete. So... Here to talk to me about season two, I'm going to beam in some help. So, energizing. Hello, Chris. Welcome aboard. Great to be here. How was the transporter this time? It's fine. I've got all 26 of my fingers. So, yeah, it's looking good. No mistakes this time. Exactly what I planned. I'm getting good at it now. (laughs) So, yeah, Discovery Season 2, Part 2. We did it. We're doing it. It's happening. And we get to do it. But first, we shall discuss the goings-on in the world of non-Star Trek entertainment. Or maybe Star Trek entertainment. I don't know what you've picked. But let's do Neil Before Rise Against. So begin with Neil Before. I've got a Neil Before, uh, Samuel L. Jackson playing Nick Fury in a new Disney Plus series. I could argue either way. A lot of the times with Neil Before's and Rise Against, I could argue either way on these things. But this sounds interesting. If they've managed to convince Samuel L. Jackson to do it, then I'm assuming they've got something good planned. So yeah, sounds interesting managed to Managed to convince Samuel L. Jackson to do it. It's, it's been more like, <laughs> come on guys. Can I do it? Can I do it? It's like, no, we, we're done with your character. We don't need you anymore. No, I'm doing it. I want to do it. And eventually he wore them down because it's COVID and they have to make something. <laughs> yeah, it does reek slightly of, uh, we need content for the Disney Plus thing. Uh, what characters have we not done yet? Goes to, to Flipbook and, and names and goes, um, oh, Nick Fury. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> Do you think it'll be Nick Fury, Earthbound, director guy, or do you think it'll be Nick Fury in space? I really hope it's the latter, because I don't really want to see him flitting about identical secret bases for 10 episodes or 8 episodes, however long they make it. I'm kind of with you. I would like the Nick Fury in space sort of thing, but I don't know what we're going to get. Is it set sort of before the fall of S.H.I.E.L.D., after the fall of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Is it Yeah. Where is it going to be fitting in, in the timeline? Other than Captain Marvel and now Black Widow, which we might never see, the MCU has been largely forward-thinking. Mm. So I think they'll pick up with Nick Fury kind of in the present day and find out where he is and what he's doing there, whether that's in space, whether that's on Earth, whether it's whatever. It could just be Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but it has Samuel L. Jackson in it. <laughs> Bring back Coulson. Maybe he hangs around with the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. guys. Oh, that'd be brilliant for them, for, them to, for them to finish Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then to start up a Nick Fury show featuring all the characters of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. 
<laughs> don't see why not. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, there's rush things that could happen. Yeah. So yeah, I'm hyped for this as well. I'm always happy to see more of Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury. He's always a good fixture of that universe, and the fact is, he loves playing that clearly. So he'll play it until he dies, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he obviously wants to keep this running, and we've seen him, like you say, in Captain Marvel. So you know, let's see, see what happens. Yeah. So, Manuel, before there is going to be a Happy Death Day three. So the Happy Death Day franchise, there are two of them. They're basically a slasher movie, but it's a time loop. And the first one is very much that, and the slasher movie part of it's kind of the least interesting part. The time loop's quite fun. So it's it's horror, but it's not really horror, as in it plays it for laughs a lot of the time. And the second one, it kind of has that slasher movie element, because the first one was a slasher movie as well, so they kind of sandwiched that in there, even though it didn't really make sense. But the second one's much more of a science fiction story. So the third one, I'm really hoping, will be a lot more out there. They've said there's no definitive timescale on when they're actually going to start work on it, but they've got a working title that's Happy Death Day to Us. So the first one was Happy Death Day, second one was Happy Death Day to You, number two and the letter U, and so this is Happy Death Day to Us. I don't know if the two is a number two or not, but it doesn't matter. I'm guessing not, because you might confuse it with the second one, but... If you haven't seen them, I'd recommend watching the first two because they're a lot of fun. And this one seems like it'd be quite cool as well. They've got a kind of comedy-ish sci-fi concept horror coming out pretty soon called Freaky, which has a trailer and it's out fairly soon. I think it's in December. And it's got Catherine Newton in it, swapping bodies with Vince Vaughn, who plays a serial Mm -hmm. killer. So that looks quite fun. And it looks along the same lines and I'll look forward to seeing that. Depending if it appears on streaming or if it appears on cinemas or whatever. Who knows these days? But it looks pretty cool. The only drawback to it kind of thing is uh, Catherine Newton is playing this shy and retiring. Oh, look, I'm not very attractive. No one notices me and I'm not popular or anything. And, Come on, you're Catherine Newton. I'm not believing this. <laughs> I guess the idea that Vince Vaughn inhabits her and suddenly she becomes much more outgoing because... She is, and then by the end she'll learn that she could be outgoing because she did have a lot going for her. We'll see. But it looks fun. So that was kind of a sneaky second meal before. But another happy death day. After the second one, they sort of tease a third one, and I was looking forward to it then. So it's good to hear that it's at least on the cards, if not immediate. Yeah, that sounds great. I've never watched them, so I will add them to my to-watch list. Yeah, get them watched. They're like 90 minutes each. Pretty breezy watch. If you like time loops which I know that you do, you'll enjoy them. Simple as that. Yeah, in the future or the past or possibly the present, we may discuss time loops. Yeah, we always discuss time loops. They happen. Life kind of feels like a time loop right now. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it's like to be stuck in time loop, is living through (laughs) the current present day thing. Okay. So, Rise Against, what's your Rise Against? I think I kind of rose against the original, but I'm going to go for this again. Disney. So, we've done one Neil before Disney. I'm going to do a Rise Against Disney to sort of balance out the cosmos. <laughs> They're making a sequel to the live-action Lion King. And I'm going to pose the question once again, and I know the answer is because shareholders. Why? This seems unnecessary. <laughs> that's, the, that's the extent of my Rise Against. It just doesn't seem like it's needed. 
Yeah. But, Although, hey. I saw that this was happening, and it depends what they're planning to do. It's the director of Moonlight, which is a film that people like. I don't really like it that much, but that's something that people can get excited about. It depends if it's just going to be a remake of the other Lion King 2 that we already have, in which case, no. Let's not start remaking direct-to-DVD <laughs> or direct-to-video as it was on the day, Disney crap. Let's not have that. So the potential is they can use that technology to make an original story with lions, which may be quite good because the issue with the live-action remakes, it's not live-action, it's animated. Let's call it animated because it is. There isn't a single live-action element to it. It's all CGI. So it's mm. just a different brand of animation than the last one, the other animated one that's celebrated. So the thing about these remakes that they're releasing is that they aren't pushing away from the source material, as in the original film, enough, or they're not doing what that original film did as well as that original film did. So with this... It's a totally new story in theory, so might not be too bad. I mean, the director gives me a little bit of hope, but then at the same time, yeah, I don't know. Let's see. I will save judgment, but consider it risen against for now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd be inclined to do the same, just because The Lion King was kind of dull and unnecessary as it was, so I have no reason to believe that the next one will be any better. We shall see, though. It may just be the same story again, but with Simba's son. <laughs> just to repeat again. Just, another do-over. Yeah, it's just regurgitating the same story. Yeah, I hope not. My rise against is the Snyder Cut. <laughs> Specifically, the fact that it is no longer the Snyder Cut because he's going back for reshoots. The reshoots that we were told weren't necessary because the film was finished and ready to release. We're just going to redub some of the dialogue because that's all we need to do. And we'll finish the special effects. And now it's, oh no, we need to reshoot stuff which baffles me, really. I mean, I think everybody saw it coming. I think don't think anybody thought that it was going to release with the footage that was already created. So what's being reshot, I couldn't imagine. But it seems like Henry Cavill's not coming back. I don't know about the rest of the cast. But my guess is it's going to be a lot of like visual effects stuff, so with some stunt guy in the Batman suit and things like that, where you don't need the cast back necessarily, or at least all of them. But... It just seems more and more that this project is just never going to be anything resembling what he would have released had nothing happened. I kind of feel that to make sure that audiences know exactly what parts of the Snyder Cut were the Snyder Cut, there should be a, like a luminous border around every one of the reshoot scenes. Because <laughs> it's, it's yeah. one of those ones where it's like, no, if it was ready and you said it was already 100% incomplete, then that's fine because these borders won't be appearing very often during this film, will they? It's one of those ones where you're like, we kind of knew, like you say, when they started saying that they were going to be re-recording some dialogue, it's like, okay, so there's going to be lots of shots from behind people's shoulders as they explain stuff. Really big, wide shots where they're talking about things, so they don't need to reshoot people's mouths talking. And now that they're shooting, like you say, they've not necessarily said which members of the cast are going back in or if it's just going to be stunt doubles and CGI. But even then, with the way CGI is now, I'm surprised that they even need people to go in to do fight scenes. So there must be more elements than that for them to justify getting actors back in. Yeah, but when you CGI, if, or completely CGI mm. a fight scene, you can tell. 
So the reshoots will probably be obvious anyway, particularly if they do get the main cast back. I mean, if you look at the current cut of Justice League, you see Ben Affleck's weight shoots up, his hair <laughs> changes colour in different scenes. It's a bit messy. You can usually tell when reshoots have happened on high-profile stuff because they usually happen so long after the project is supposedly finished that there's a visible cue as to when changes happen because you'll see that someone is looks a little bit older or they look a little bit different, but they've kind of tried to make them look like they did in the previous scene and haven't quite managed it, but did the best they could. Because you can't really account for like weight gain and so on, or weight loss, or things like that. So if you watch the theatrical cut of Justice League, the Joss cut, whatever you want to call it, if you watch Ben Affleck see the scene, you will see he completely changes size and shape and hair colour just periodically. <laughs> Makes a bit of sense, I suppose. Yeah. To say nothing about Henry Cavill's facial hair situation. Yeah, I think we've discussed that one before. But part of me was like, okay, if the thing exists, release it. Then they said they were expanding it out to be four episodes or four parts. And then now that it's the the reshoot stuff and you start getting into, okay, it's not actually the Snyder Cut, this. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Let's have the actual Snyder Cut, shall we? Rather than yeah. a complete rehash of the film. Yeah. And the sort of sub-rise against is the fact that we're just <laughs> never going to hear the end of this, ever. Just going to be if it sucks, it'll be well. That's because the studio interfered and made him shoot new stuff. Or if it's great, then it's let's make more. Let's get Snyder to make every DC film. It's oh my god, can we just hear the end of it? I'm trying to think who announced that they were doing another director's cut of things this week. Is it Rocky Four? Sylvester Stallone is doing another cut of Rocky Four. Yeah, moving the robot. But it's like, why are all these things happening now? Is it just suddenly they're like, oh, oh, well, people sort of thought this sounded a bit silly, so I'm going to redo the entire film. It's because we have so many films now where things change mid-flight, especially high-profile films, where a director will leave the project or be fired or the studio will step in and make them change a lot. And then you have this hypothetical original vision that we never get to see, which will automatically be better because it's not the one that we've seen, so people must think it's going to be better, where maybe not necessarily. I'm not sure any version of Fantastic would be any good based on the setup that they had. So I don't think Josh Trank's cut will be any good. There's a supposed David Ayer cut of Suicide Squad. Don't think that's going to be any good either. Don't need to see it. I'll watch it if it comes out out of curiosity, but we don't need to see it. So now we're getting Rocky Four, presumably the less stupid cut. But I, my favourite <laughs> things about Rocky Four are how stupid it is. The Rocky movies average out as being a great franchise, but I acknowledge that they get dumber as they go on. But the thing is, my favourite Rocky movie is Rocky Two. I think that's the best in terms of what they achieve and what they're putting across. But if I want to watch a Rocky movie where I want to have a bit of fun, I'll put on Rocky Four because that's what it is. It's montage after montage. It's ridiculous fun. You've got a Russian supervillain that he has to fight who can murder people in the ring and get away <laughs> with it, but not murder Rocky because he's Rocky and he's a protagonist and the punches don't kill him. <laughs> they only kill Apollo. So I don't see why making a more serious version of Rocky Four will be any better. Am I going to watch it? Yeah, but they're removing the robot. The robot is such a ridiculous out there sort of thing and one of my favourite bits in Rocky Four is a bit where the robot comes in for the first time and Apollo is in the middle of saying something. And then he just pauses when the robot comes and then turns back and 
as I was saying, and just continues <laughs> on as if nothing had happened. And it's, I don't know if that was the actor who was just surprised by this weird metallic thing or, I don't know. It's a really funny moment. Went full method and just didn't tell him about the robot. <laughs> I believe that, and I think that'd be great. I just think it's such a cool little moment, and removing that will remove that, which therefore makes the film worse as far as I'm concerned. No, definitely. But again, I'm curious. Release the slide. <laughs> <laughs> No, don't release the slide cut. It's perfect the way it is. It's a hallmark of 80s cheese, and it doesn't need to be anything else. That's what Rocky IV is. It's so unapologetically what it is, and it doesn't need to be anything else. So that's us. We have risen against the awful things of entertainment lately. Surprisingly, there's still things happening, despite (laughs) the fact that we're never going to see any of this stuff. It's just, we're announcing stuff, and then it'll come out, maybe, eventually, if you ever get to leave your house ever again. We don't know anymore. So, let's get back to our featured topic. Discovery Season 2, Part 2. So we're picking up from the episode where Spock regains his marbles or we're picking up with the episode where Spock regains his marbles perhaps but do you want to give us a spoiler free rundown of what you thought of the landing of season two I really liked season two overall I have little niggles that I always sort of have when it comes to wrapping up a season but overall I thought it was very good I can see why some people would be against the finale of discovery season two I think bits at the end get kind of a bit out there as far as Trek are concerned but overall really enjoyed it yeah I'm the same I think season two overall is very good and I think it maybe bites off a bit more than it can chew in regards to the central mystery which we'll get to it's kind of like Picard except not as bad in the way that it builds up a lot of stuff and then it can't quite deliver on its promise but again we'll get to that I think a lot of the stuff they do is really good Spock is great Ethan Peck Spock is great the Visuals are amazing. Pike remains amazing. Everything kind of is there to make something great and they don't quite mix it together as well as they could. But I can't say any more without spoiling everything. So should we just go straight to Black Alert? Oh, let's do. Yeah, gotta love Black Alert. Black Alert. Black Alert. We can say whatever we want now because we've done the jump. Amazing. So... Let's kind of start with the plot. So we got some answers to the Red Angel mystery. Well, we got all the answers to the Red Angel mystery. Turns out there was two all along, one of which was Michael Burnham's mother, the other of which is Michael Burnham. So what did you think of that? Did you think it was a good left turn where it's like, oh my God, it's her mother, not her, and everyone thinks it's her? I kind of had the issue where you had this whole episode where we're going to trap the Red Angel because she's you. She won't let you die because she's you. And if you die, then she dies and therefore she's you. So we have to catch her and we will catch her because she won't let you die. But when they talk about that in the first kind of 10 minutes of the episode, by the time we're getting to the end, I'm like, they're going to throw something else at us here. And they've said DNA, so it's going to be one of our parents, isn't it? Yeah, there was the, oh, it's it's very similar to you, and it's so close, and it's so... And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, here we go. It's it's going to be, you know, and it, it really had to be the mum because of the sort of the shape of the suit, put it that way, <laughs> the sort of womanly shape of the suit. So you're <laughs> like, it ain't going to be the dad. So, yeah, it's got to be the mum as the only other person that was there. So, yeah, they kind of did that little bit. I think it was a slight cop out with the way it worked of oh well if you die now then you won't be able to do anything in the future i didn't quite 
get the explanation of how the mum knew when Burnham was going to die in those situations. I'm guessing there's some recording of it in the future and then she goes back to save her at that point? I don't know. Her log entries do specify that she's been watching Burnham throughout her life. So I was mm-hmm. there when you first went aboard the yeah. Shenzo and all that kind of stuff. So there's some kind of monitor placed on her. So I was okay with that from that perspective. She's watching and then therefore sees that Burnham's about to die and then steps in. But doesn't somehow see all the chat about laying a trap. Well, that's the bit that I didn't know was, is she in the future? She's looking at records and going, oh, Burnham dies on this particular date. All right, I'm going to go back and save her. Or she graduates on this particular date. Oh, I'm going to go back and watch. Yeah. That's how I kind of thought it might have worked. I didn't think that she was like watching all the time over her shoulder sort of thing, but maybe just popping back to her timeline every once in a while to have a look. But I wasn't sure how frequent that was. I suppose time is no object in this sort of of situation. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't because she is still finite. Mm. Her aging hasn't been stopped. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, she only has a limited amount of time in which she can observe Burnham because well she'll die eventually she'll get old and die eventually it'll take years sure but it's not an infinite timeline I think they did a really poor job of explaining the capabilities of the Red Angel suit in general like what could it do for example when it turned out that Burnham was the other Red Angel the one that was laying all the signals they still never explained what the signals were is it just nondescript energy that's emitted by the suit in which case, you should probably be able to identify it quite easily. It doesn't make that much sense. There's also the fact is we've detected seven signals, which is fine. There's these markers of these places we need to investigate. But then it's a signal has appeared. So did they appear twice? I mean, obviously they did, but they talk as if they've seen the signals and they're waiting for the signals at the same time. So I didn't really get that. Yeah, it was sort of when they mentioned the signals at first, they're like, oh, there's seven of them. Yeah, they all blinked at the same time, yeah. but we didn't have an accurate enough plot to say where they were because of time shenanigans, I guess. Well, they knew where they were, but there was only one that was within warp travel reach at a reasonable time frame at first. And then obviously mm-hmm. the spore drive lets them get to them instantly. But they still somehow get there after they've disappeared. But they didn't have a list of locations, though, did they? No, they did. You see it on a galactic map and stuff like that. Well, I saw like the visual aid say, sort of saying what direction the signals were in but not necessarily oh it's this place this place this place because then you would have thought that they would have just dispatched people to look at each one of them immediately the problem with that is some of them were like thousands upon thousands of light years away and then they were yeah yeah but discovery being discovery yeah or at least even looking at the list and going oh that's the planet that my stowaway queen came from oh and that one that's my home planet and what's this one oh it's at the klingons yeah okay as much as they were scattered all over the place not all of them were outside of the reach at warp if you know what i mean because at the beginning i thought the whole idea was that they could only get the pinpoint of one of the signals at that point that's why they went to that location yeah i guess that one was close enough to Mm. sensors to zero in on it yeah, it's confusing. Yeah, I need to rewatch, rewatch, rewatch to get the actual line of them. I mean, I think the original idea of, okay, we have seven locations and we're going to go each one of them 
you know, that will give us something to do for the entire season. We'll investigate all this and see what there is. But the fact that the signals also reappeared and they were discussing it as if they were sort of appearing for the first time, but they'd already appeared. So they already knew there were seven and then there was another seven, I guess, or another six. Mm. It was weird. And then it turns out the last one, oh yeah, we haven't done, uh, we've got two left. Uh, one of them uh, we'll use as a beacon to get discovery of the future. And then uh, the other one, uh, I'll send it when we're in the future to signify that we're <laughs> safe. And it's almost like, okay, we've written 14 episodes here. We got rid of five of the signals and we're on episode 12. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> uh, quick, quick, come up with a reason for the other two. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much of that they plotted out at the beginning or how much was sort of written in, written out with regard to the signals. I mean, it gave an interesting mystery of there's these signals that are dragging us about and we don't know why. So I've taken us to places. Yeah. The, the fact that it's revealed that it's basically bringing together all the component parts that are needed for the final battle is good. Although it did confuse me somewhat that the whole reason for the Kelpian revolt was so that they could steal some ships. Yeah, because we need a we few need, fighters. We need, we need a few fighters. <laughs> There's many planets out there, but the whole idea is we've caused a revolution on an entire planet. We've evolved an entire species yeah. so that they can steal some fighters. For a battle. Is there not some other places that you could have maybe... No, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, this massive Klingon ship is not enough. Yeah, the Klingon Amada is not enough. Fighters. We also need some Kelpians who have just, over the past, let's say, month, let's give them a month, have <laughs> learned how to fly fighters. We need them. Yeah. We need those guys. That's who we need. Yeah. So, yeah, and the idea is... I mean, they, they say it early on, if we were brought here, perhaps this is why. So it's pretty clear that there was a design attached to the signals and it was dragging discovery from place to place. So I think the idea that it was Burnham from the future pointing them in the direction they need to go in order to solve the problem is a reasonable idea. I just think the execution mm. is a little bit off because when you get to the final episode, it's this point where Burnham's like, I'm trying to set a destination point for the future. It's not working. And then Spock's like, well, you have to complete the loop. And she's like, oh, cool, okay. I'm just going to jump back in time another five times right now. And then she does. And I think something like that could have spent a whole episode on it with her jumping back to sort of points earlier in the season, giving you greater insight into what she was doing to point things in that direction. Because like I said about the suit, it's not clear how it works. So the Red Angel shows up, which is Burnham, to stop the Kelpian genocide. But it's not clear how she does it because they just whipped it up in their replicator 10 minutes ago kind of thing. So she's wearing a suit that they've made with currently existing technology. So what does she do? What is in there? Yeah, she sort of generates a massive EMP from the suit somehow that causes it. But yeah, yeah they never explain that. Also, you start getting into the usual time travel problem, which is they needed the signals to be there to show them where to go so that they would get the suit and build everything together so that they could go back and generate the signals that showed them where they were supposed to go. Yeah, I mean, it's the idea is that Burnham's mm. created a closed loop with those signals. But that's contradicted by the fact that her mother is not in a closed loop because she's trying to prevent a future where everything's blown a bit by Control, who has taken over all machine life and destroyed mm. all organic life in the galaxy somehow in the future. So our Burnham, Michael Burnham's in a closed loop that she's playing her part in, whereas Dr. Burnham isn't because her future gets changed 
or the future she's from or lives in gets mm-hmm. changed, I guess. So yeah, try to have their cake and eat it too <laughs> with that. I suppose it's one of those things you've just got to allow the conceit at this point, but it's very confusing to try and what and try and get explanations. The other bit, I know I'm kind of jumping around the story a little bit at the same time as I do this, so apologies, but when Burnham's mum gets souked back after the, the field and everything collapses, she's not wearing the suit. The suit goes back and then she gets taken back. Yeah. But in later episodes, you get the speech on the video going, oh, thank God for this alloy that I've made the suit from, otherwise I'd get torn into pieces as I travel through time. So I'm assuming Burnham's mum's dead now, if they're following what they've said in the show. Well, they act like she's dead as well after that point, so Burnham really wants revenge and goes on that mission against control. She wants to on her own, but Spock doesn't let her, which is fine. But So she wants revenge after that, so they are acting like she's dead, so maybe she is. But the idea is she's kind of tethered to the future, so she can only make mm. small hops back in time for a little while to do stuff and then come back. And everything she does to try and stop control fails. Everything she does. Although, turns out she's only playing a little bit of a part so that her daughter can pick up the slack and finish it off. So she, she's put some elements in. I guess Burnham figures out how to use those elements. And I think I would have liked to see a bit more of a revelatory moment where she realises how each of these components play in. Why is Terra Elysium important? Why did we need to be there? Why is this asteroid important? Why did we need to be there? Etc. And there's never really that point. It's just, mm. oh crap, I need to go back in time because there's a loop involved and I need to complete it. And she just kind of instantly knows what to do. I mean, it's in the heat of a really well-produced finale. So you're kind of going along with it and a lot of people will be going along with it. But at that point, I was kind of like, hang on a minute, slow down. What realisation have you come to here? Why have you understood what's important here? Also, the time crystal is good for one trip, but it's also good for seven trips. <laughs> So we're going to be stuck in the future after we use this. It's going to burn out after our one jump, but I can use it another five or six times before we do this one jump that we're doing. Yeah, you're not going as far. Is it because she's only gone back in time a few months? Does it use less energy? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But it's we can only use this once, but also six times. <laughs> I think it would have been more powerful to have the realisation of we can't come back, be at that point. Where she realises, I have to do all these jumps for this to work. Yeah, we can do one more. And after I do one that, last, the time yeah. crystal is buggered. We can do our trip to the future, but we can't come back. But then you would miss that powerful moment where the crew's like, we're coming with you, Burnham, because we're a family. We all stick together. All of us who have had at least five minutes of screen time over the course <laughs> of the season, we're ready to go to the future together. I mean, it's a powerful moment, and you kind of think... Oh, it's the sort of core bridge crew. It's the people that know Burnham. And then you go into battle and you're like, there's tons of people on this ship. Loads of folk are like, yeah, sure. Why not? Into the future. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm up with that. Sure. No problem. I always hated everybody I care about anyway. Screw it. I'm just yeah, gonna- that's it. I mean, there's enough time at the very, very last moment to throw a bunch of them in the escape pod so they can get out. But no, it's like, no, we're all going. Yeah. It's not clear how big the crew complement is on Discovery when they go into the future. There's a good number of people there. I guess the implication is the whole crew want to stick together or near enough the whole Hmm. crew. There was a line about, oh, the last of the crew have been transferred to the Enterprise or the last people that want to stay have been transferred to the Enterprise. Yeah. So who knows? But that moment, I mean, it works because Tilly's there, because Hmm. Stamets is there, etc. But 
It's just, yeah, okay, I know you people, I know your faces, but I don't really believe that you're a family like you keep saying that you are because we haven't seen it and you don't get to do this at this point. And it's made even worse with Pike's goodbye speech where he's like, oh, what a crew. And he goes through all of them and just lists <laughs> a character trait that they're supposed to have. It's like, Reese, you're so good in a crisis. Like, is he? I really don't know. I guess he is. I mean, he's not screaming on the bridge when they're in danger or in battle, but... Sure. And yes, you, Gary, the man that brought me my coffee, you are a fantastic person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, you're the best barista this ship has. You're doing great. Yeah, never seen anybody run to the replicator so quickly and not spill anything. Well done. The other bit that kind of took me out of that moment was Spock being there and doing that. And I'm going to stay as well. And I'm like, well, either all of yeah, this is like, going to go terribly happen. wrong or there's going to be a last-minute situation where Spock ain't going because they're kind of writing the perfect out here for why Discovery is not talked about later is some sort of time travel shenanigans. And if Spock is yeah. part of that erasure, then it ain't going to work. Yeah, well, I reread my reviews before recording this because I just wanted to see how my opinions had changed or if they had changed. And they really haven't, actually, although some of them were tempered a bit by future knowledge. As in, all right, okay, I, I criticise this, but mm. they pick it up later, or they don't resolve it very well later, or whatever. These little bits and pieces that I would be, oh, but they haven't answered this question. Or they just leave that lingering, and they, well, some things they do leave lingering, some things they don't. But the whole, we're abandoning discovery because we need to blow up the ship with this data on it, fine. At that point, I was like, this isn't going to happen. It's the penultimate episode. They're not going to do this. So you've got this whole extended sequence of them evacuating discovery, and then they try and blow it up, and then, oh my god, the self-destruct isn't working, because does it ever work? No, of course not, because then you would actually have to follow through on something. But also, everything leading up to that was acting as if Discovery is a character within the show itself, and Star Trek, that is supposed to be a thing. You know, the Enterprise is the character, Voyager is a character, the Defiant even has a personality of its own kind of thing, because of the emotional attachment the captains or the crew have towards the ship so voyager it's a home it's the only home they've got it puts them together that kind of thing the enterprise it's a ship that gets them in and out of unimaginable trouble stuff like that so you're supposed to have that connection to discovery but you don't because they've never really fostered that no one ever seems to regard it as anything more than a ship <laughs> it's not one of those well if it wasn't for this ship we wouldn't be yeah, we wouldn't be where we are today, or we wouldn't be who we are today. So at that point, it's like, Discovery, we'll never see another one like that. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling this. I'm not, under, I'm not feeling the connection here. So you're, you're spending this extended time saying goodbye to a ship that you're not actually going to say goodbye to. It's kind of emotionally empty in that respect. And then, of course, the self-destruct doesn't work. And then, it's, okay, that's fine. We'll just blow up arm photon torpedoes, and then you fire two. Well, this isn't working. It's well, well, eventually. You can wear it down. You can get there. Yeah. It would have been, well, we could just beam on board and start taking chunks out of the shields so that it doesn't work anymore and then beam back and then blow up. Well, this whole erasing the sphere data thing confused me because if you want to erase data, surely, like, to take a big magnet to the computer core, wouldn't that work? I mean, they never really established if the data was sentient itself or not. It's suggested that it might be, but they make it clear that it's not as well. So it's, it's just information that's sitting in the memory banks that somehow knows when you're trying to delete it and won't 
let you. It's happy to be transferred, but it's not happy to be erased. So yeah. my thing was, well, surely you could then just transfer it into something that's weak and vulnerable, like the world's most unreliable floppy disk. You could transfer it to that, and it would go, and then you can just destroy the object that it's in. Well, I suppose the transfer would only duplicate it, wouldn't it? Well, I thought it, a transfer was, because when they're talking about sending it to the future, yeah. in the suit, they were talking about it being like a literal transfer, because otherwise the plan just was pointless, because they were just sending a duplicate of the data in the suit to the future. Yeah. We're going to cut and paste instead of copy and paste. <laughs> so a cut paste rather than a copy paste. So if you could yeah. do that to the suit, then surely you could have done that to something with a lot of TNT wrapped around it. You no, know, the data wouldn't have known. It wouldn't have liked. The data would have been like, no, that just looks really vulnerable. That does it. I don't want to transfer there. Although it will let itself transfer to Section 31. Stuff. The data is quite happy to be on a ship with shields, but would be unhappy if it went anywhere else. I don't know. It was another thing. I give them credit for trying because there will have been people screaming at the screen, just blow up the ship already. <laughs> so, yeah. And we get to see the cool evacuation tube things. So, yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, Transporters are so last year. We need big corridors. Yeah, we need big evacuation corridors rather than just beaming people to convenient locations on the ship. <laughs> I suppose that would take longer, but yeah. I don't know, if you're doing batches, I don't know. But the whole data erasure thing, I mean, if you really want to get rid of information that's on a hard drive, you can do it, surely. Yeah, either accidentally or on purpose. It has been done. But I suppose that was the conceit to get things going the way they wanted to, is that you couldn't erase it, you couldn't delete it. So, yeah. It just seemed a bit of a rotten thing. It seems like it would be possible to do it, but... Well, I feel like something really changed as well between the first half of the season and the second half of the season. Because when they first get the data dump from the Dying Sphere, Pike says something about, this will keep Federation analysts busy for centuries or whatever. <laughs> so that implies that we've already sent it to Starfleet to have a look at it. But no, yeah. the only copy is on Discovery's hard drive. <laughs> It does seem like if it's as important, or they think it's as important as at the time, it would have been copied off Discovery already. I don't know how much in-world time is between these episodes, but you would think having something that important on board, it would have been copied elsewhere. Even if it was on the slowest deep space dial-up network getting sent (laughs) back in chunks. Yeah, well, the dialogue suggested that it already had, because scientists are really excited about this. We're going to keep everyone busy for a long time, Mm. and but we haven't transferred it yet because I guess no one's brought a thumb drive to come and get it. (laughs) (laughs) Next time Sarek visits, he's to bring an external hard drive and then we'll copy it over (laughs) and he'll take it back to Starfleet because you have to imagine things like their log entries and stuff like that are automatically backed up to the the space cloud. Space cloud. I like the sound of space space cloud. cloud. (laughs) (laughs) Because they must be transmitting information all the time. Just generally, like sensor scans and whatever else. Yeah. It must be... A bit like ships at sea, they buffer the information, and then when they're able to send signals, then they do. So there's stuff that gets sent out all the time as priority. There's other things that won't be sent until they've got a hard connection at the dock. Yeah, and they'll be logging into sort of navigation Mm. stuff as well all the time to find out what's going on, or we're going to check sensor telemetry from this area of space because we're not there. Stuff like that. We've got a distress call coming through our relay system, that kind of stuff. It's a typical Star Trek thing, though. The technology is really advanced until the story needs it not to be. (laughs) And this, I'm not believing the fact that there's one copy of this data in this show because of what they've shown us with the technology up until now. So it's in this one location, although Section 31 get a good chunk of it. 
But is it because they don't finish the transfer? They don't have what they already have? It was quite a high percentage. I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was like we've got X percent of this data now. But it was over 50%. I think by the yeah. time they finished saying, when they were intercepting what had been sent to the suit, it was way over 50%. Now, unless the information on how to create really good artificial intelligence was at the very, very, very end <laughs> of the data dump. Yeah. Once you get to 99.99%, then you know how to create yourself some good artificial intelligence then that information's already out there. Also, if the sphere data is smart enough to protect itself, you'd think it would be smart enough to transmit itself across the deep space network that they've got already, sending copies of itself. Or How often have we seen the plot of a science fiction show be, oh, it's AI, and it's copied itself onto, I think even Stargate did an episode which was kind of similar, where it copied itself onto people's phones, onto laptops, onto (laughs) basically everything. And I think it ended up on Skynet, Skynet, essentially. Yeah, Yeah, it ended up on one of the little Malp rover things that they used to use. They couldn't erase it. Every time they rebooted the computer, it had copied itself somewhere else. So, yeah, Yeah. you kind of think if the sphere data was that smart that it can enable the shields on Discovery, it knows when it's being maliciously blown up, then it would do that. I mean, I'm surprised it didn't steer Discovery away from the final battle and just run and hide. Yeah. You start to wonder all these things it can do. Okay, let's just fly Discovery into the sun. But let's disable navigation so the ship doesn't know it's flying into (laughs) the sun. Let's just take phasers to the computer core. That'll do it. Surely. Get some engineers and some mallets. Yeah. Hey, I've been the engineer that's accidentally shut down the server before. I've been there and done that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could accidentally cause the warp core to overload using manual means that no software patch could fix. I'm just going to disable the force field that keeps that matter and antimatter separate. Boom. Yeah. Let's (laughs) let's switch off some of the cooling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, watch everything melt. Yeah. Let's manually remove... A specific component. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It did seem that there were certain <laughs> bits that yeah. just needed a bit more explanation. And I know I always say that's not the point of doing the thing. As much as I enjoy the show and I enjoy the bits, these things do yeah. play in my head, especially when you're doing a second watch. Because I think in a first watch, yeah. you sort of get carried away with the plot of the show and the pace, especially towards the finale in this, which is like the finale of a movie, really a big epic sort of space Mm. battle. You get distracted from the other things that are going on because there's just so much on the screen. Yeah. It would have actually been quite a good episode, though. Let's go through all these permutations of how we can try and erase this data and then show why we can't do it. (laughs) So be like, okay, all I have to do is disconnect this and then that will wipe the computer core and then, I don't know, the ship zaps them or something like that. I'd love a silly montage like that. You get Jet Reno with a sledgehammer trying to hit stuff in a force field coming up and... Anything like that, I'd love that. Trying to steer it into the sun and it just starts doing loop-de-loops and flies back or something. I love that. Yeah. You know, just a little <laughs> silly montage. I mean, it would have been very out of place and I'm sure people wouldn't have liked it, but I'd have gone for that. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if I saw it, I'd be like, this is stupid. But it's the fact that they don't address any of the... There are other ways to wipe out data that kind of just annoyed me. But it is what it is. It sort of enables the plot to take place and... It's this whole, we need to remove discovery from the present day in order to stop this data from falling into control's hands. Except we stop control before we go to the future. So therefore the problem is kind of just solved. But we're still going. I suppose it's a case of it's solved for now, isn't it? Because control sort of came back from the future in the first place. So potentially that's still an avenue? I don't know. 
I'm just glad it wasn't heralding the introduction of the Borg like a lot of mm. people theorised it might be. You even had the bit where uh, Leland, or the possessed Leland says, struggle is pointless, <laughs> which is synonyms for resistance is futile. And there was an element of that, though. I'm like, oh no, they're, they're going to do an early Borg reveal thing and then control is the Borg? I don't know. Yeah. It did seem something along that line. And when Leland became control exclusively and stopped being himself, that's where he stopped being interesting. Because I liked Leland as this, he's not a villain, but he's in the shadows, he's in the grey areas, he's manipulating stuff, he does the dirty jobs, and it's, nope, now he's just an AI meat sack <laughs> that is trying to kill them. That's all he's doing. Great. Yeah, so he's now the mindless killing machine, that's fine. Yeah. As much as Giorgio now loves the fact that she gets to punch him around a bit. She could have done that anyway. Yeah, she was kind of taking pot shots at him anyway. You'd think that she'd be more annoyed that it wasn't her chance to take him down now. It's like he had brought it on himself. The scene in particular where he goes up and he gets the little eye scan and then the medical needles sort of pop out. It's like, why is that even an <laughs> element of that machine? Who? In what circumstance, when you're verifying your ID, do you need needles to pop out the machine? Like, someone <laughs> placed those implements in there for what reason? <laughs> yeah, Star Trek Star technology. Trek technology. Yeah, it's yeah. advanced until it isn't. <laughs> so to self-destruct a ship, you do a handprint scan and you say your code to the computer. In order to do, I think, was it some of the data transfer? I'm trying to remember what he was enabling when he went up to that machine. Yeah. To enable something on his ship, he's got to go up and he's got to do an eye scan. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Pike's like, yeah, let's destroy let's... Discovery. Put your hand here. Yeah, Discovery. Yeah, can you auto-destruct, please? Yeah, sure, Captain, in a minute. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, because Leland dies mm. as soon as Control inhabits him, and then you lose a good character there. You lose a complex and morally ambiguous character. And he is just an instrument of destruction, really. He is a physical presence for control to inhabit, because I guess fighting an abstract concept like an AI would be too hard to understand. So you need something to punch, you need something to shoot at. Yeah, but I suppose they possibly were scared of going down an angle that would be compared too similarly to the Borg. If you had control creating a bunch of robots to go about and start beating people up, then you might have gone, oh, they're just doing a cheap, low-budget Borg version. With this, with Leyland, it is giving them a sort of face, a person that they could do. I, I like the idea of them maybe just using the holograms, because it seems like they don't actually need a physical presence to interact with anything. It seems that it's more yeah. than capable of jumping ship to ship and starting to cause mischief. From where it is. It hails them as a Vulcan Admiral. It's already managed to vent the ship with people on board. It vented the stations with people on board. It took over all those Section 31 ships. I don't know how the rest of Starfleet has not been taken at that particular moment. It took down the communications network, but it didn't take down the rest of the ships. So it was a weird choice the way it decided to do things at that point. I guess the implication is that non-Section 31 ships... They have too much of a human element that needs to run them for control to do that. Yeah, Section 31 had given more control options in there so that it was more autonomous, maybe. Yeah. But, 
Yeah, I don't know. Let's go with that. Sure. Yeah, why not? But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It seemed a shame to lose Leyland. He seemed like he had an interesting backstory. There was a lot of sort of mystery in there when he was talking to Burnham about his decision to send the time crystal to her family or parents and not checking for trackers or, or thinking that he had got a cream bike. He was saying he was young and ambitious and he did stupid things and he's done more stupid things. You're kind of like, I want to see that story. I want to find out more about this character. Yeah. And then, like you say, he's kind of taken out the board from pretty much that moment almost mm-hmm. in the show. Yeah. It's a shame because he was interesting and then he, you know, he just becomes that. And especially hearing... Alan Van Sprang talking at that convention we were at, mm. where he was talking about playing Leland and playing around those grey areas and all that kind of stuff. And I, he, he never mentioned the, oh yeah, I didn't really like playing him in the last half of the season because it wasn't him. But you can imagine that it's a lot less interesting to play because he is just, look at me, I'm a threat and here I am with a phaser and I'm going to shoot you. And Okay, whatever. I was much more interested in you before. And I'd be interested to see how Leland reacts to the fact that Control is taking over, how this organisation he's given his life to is Mm. corrupted by this thing that he once used as a resource and all that stuff. I think there was a place for Leland in those final episodes. But we need Michelle Yeoh to fight someone, so yeah. Yeah, but it didn't need to be him. Like you say, seeing his reaction to all the ships turning against him all this network that they've created turning against them, I think we'd have been more interested in his own ship turning against them and him being one of the few survivors of a ship. Yeah, because it could have been anyone, as you say. Yeah. It could have been that guy that they found. Yeah, exactly. Who's yeah. because space is really small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Starfleet's very small. There's not many people out there. So Everyone. Everywhere Michael Burnham goes, she will meet someone that ties to her past. It's just the way it works. <laughs> The universe revolves around her. <laughs> In this season, quite literally. Yeah, well, this season and let's assume the next season as well. But yeah, I would have liked to have seen more about Leyland. Yeah, it's a shame. So yeah, there's not much to talk about Leyland because you do, as you say, get that regret that he has over being responsible mm. for Burnham's parents' death and when she punches him in the face and all that kind of stuff. It's really good. And just the little back and forth he has with Giorgio where she's constantly trying to overthrow him. I really like the bit where he's getting her dressing down after losing Spock and she's just relishing in that <laughs> moment. We were talking to Captain George Hall. We're not talking to you. You're the failure <laughs> here. And she's like, Haha, yep. <laughs> I'll be running this place pretty yeah, soon. I'm planning to take over. I like that she's doing this little power struggle to take over, but then it becomes null and void by the end of this because it's all gone and she's, well... By the face of it, looks like she's stayed on Discovery. For now. She has to get back, though, because she's apparently in the Section 31 show that they might still be making. Well, I was trying to see how that was going to work. Did she get in a escape shuttle before they went through, or an escape pod? or No, she's in the next season. Well, there we go. So, how... Nah, anyway. <laughs> it's Star Trek. You can travel through time. She can get back. She will get back. Somehow. If they are still making this show, who knows? I hope they are, because I'd be interested to see, especially with Tyler in the lead, although, I don't know, it seems like that's giving too honourable a face to Section 31. I prefer Section 31 to be this necessary evil within the Federation. He seems like he would be as conflicted as Pike would be running it. It doesn't seem that he would be brutal enough to be part of Section 31. 
He seems like he'd be misguided enough to join, like he did, but not enough that, oh yeah, I'll, I'll lead this into the light. He yeah. doesn't seem like the character that would make those tough decisions. Yeah, although maybe he can become that, but at least Tyler sort of finds a place for himself after all this, as in he's neither Klingon nor human, so he's in this weird clandestine situation where he can kind of operate autonomously. That was all right. As a conclusion for Tyler, except this whole, we're all going to the future because none of us really belong here, except we do because we're going to show an extended scene of these people that have had five minutes of screen time saying goodbye to their families. <laughs> so I don't know who these people are, let alone their bloody families. <laughs> Why are we having this time? It would be great to have this time if you knew them better, but you don't. It's true, but it was a very nicely shot scene because oh, yeah. it was everyone's yeah. different quarters as it sort of turned round and moved back. It was everyone's different quarters, but it looked the same. I liked the way that was shot. Yeah, and it's like the whole, oh, okay, I'm really going to miss you guys. You know, remember when we used to do this? It's like, no, no one does because <laughs> <laughs> I barely know who you are. Never mind. <laughs> but Tyler is a part of that. He's like, oh, yeah, Michael, I was just there because I just, you know, wanted to be in the crowd scene and it looked kind of life-affirming and all that. But I'm going to stay here because someone needs to make sure that control never happens again and they get their kind of cheerful goodbye as well. Yeah, as he runs off at that particular moment to go yeah. back and get himself an armada. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to leave, but I can't tell you why. But don't worry, it'll be important. It's almost the Gandalf thing. Watch for me on the third day. <laughs> as, as, as the sun rises, that shall be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that bit with Tyler, I didn't quite understand because the whole point, I thought, was that he had disappeared and was assumed dead by the Klingons. If the Empire finds out you're alive, yeah. we're screwed. Is that I'm just going to be standing on the ship surrounded let, by Let me just stand on this bridge not going to say anything. and give orders over the radio to the other Klingons. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Who's that, Chancellor? Never you mind. Yeah. Who's that very (laughs) human looking guy standing next to you? In a Starfleet uniform. Don't ask any questions here. (laughs) I will kill you where you stand, okay? (laughs) Seems like I should tell the other ships about this. Nope, nope. Just don't tell anyone. Ask me one more question and I will cut out your tongue. That's a very clever thing to say. (laughs) But yeah, it's like your cover appears to be blown, Tyler. Yeah, it was like two episodes ago where we had this issue where you couldn't go down to Boreth because if the Klingons know you're alive, we're screwed. My entire chancellorship is null and void because Mm. people will know that we lied to them and my entire reign is built on a lie. But I'm just going to be standing on the capital ship right next to you in two episodes' time. And it's not a problem. There's no way anyone will leak that to anyone else. No, all these Klingons are too (laughs) honourable. They'll never say anything. (laughs) Yeah, this guy in a Starfleet uniform standing next to them. <laughs> yeah, not going to be an issue. Not at all. <laughs> Is that a Starfleet shuttle in your shuttle bay? Yeah. Nope. No. No, it's not. No. no. God, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's one that we got in the war yeah. and we have disguised it. Yep. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what did we think of Spock? We finally get him back with all his marbles intact after a, an extended therapy session, I guess, where he gets his brain reordered. What did you think of Ethan Peck's Spock? I liked Ethan Peck's Spock. I think he was very good. Very cold and distant, the way that he's played him, especially at the beginning. I kind of liked the way the relationship was more sort of warming up to being a more sort of brother-sister relationship towards the end. But at first it was a bit like, oh... 
you're just being a bit of a dick. <laughs> she's come out there, she's rescued you, she's broken you out of everything that you're in, and now you're a bit like, oh yeah, and I still hate you, by the way. But I think the fact that he has a beard is very calculated because mm. it allows them to make him different to what you would expect from Spock because he's visually not the clean-cut Spock that we know. And obviously this is him far younger. They do that brilliant previously on mm. Star Trek and they show clips from the cage in the Talos Four episode. And it shows that bit where Spock touches the plant, the whistling plant, and then it stops making noise. And then he smiles. And it's that idea that he hasn't quite fully suppressed all his emotions yet. He hasn't made that decision. And a big part of why he goes down that route is his relationship with Michael. But it's really funny the way he would snipe at her here and there. So it's the whole, she's the red angel. That fits her emotional profile. (laughs) 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 He just takes little digs at her here and there. And I love the bit where he invites himself on that mission that she goes on. She's like, I'm just going myself. It's standard recon. And he's like, nope. I'm coming with you. And then he just walks past her onto the shuttle and, sh- and Burnham goes, <laughs> you know, there's that perfect sibling frustration that they portray in that one grunt that she does. I think that's yeah. brilliant. Dealing with your little brother. Yeah. It's like, I suppose then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although I didn't believe the whole, the rift that existed between them is because Burnham thought it might be too dangerous for him to follow her around because he was obsessed with her was really attached to her. So she called them names. And then that caused that rift that lasted years upon years. It was effectively done. I like the cutting back between the child and Mm. adult actors saying the things and how hurtful it would be. But I wouldn't think that would be, oh yeah, we haven't spoken since. This happened when we were like 12. (laughs) And now we're in our late 20s, early 30s, whatever it is. And he still hates me because I said that. I don't think that was strong enough. It didn't seem like that. And also Spock himself, looking back, we go, oh, I realise why that happened now. At the time, it would break the relationship apart at that point. But you would think with a more adult hindsight, he would go, oh, now I understand why that was happening because of the separatists and the way things were going on. Well, they gain that closure, don't they? It it doesn't take long. It just seems like a bit of a non-issue. But I like that Spock is angry and he's enjoying being angry where he knocks a chess set over and all that kind of stuff i think that's quite well done because he's been through such an ordeal yeah it's true that outburst but it works as a way of showing that he isn't pent up he isn't holding everything back at that particular moment and yeah it works really well as a piece and he's sort of development through it also like you say with the beard it sort of shows okay it's different he's trying it out even Burnham gets a little line of, do you really think the beard's working for you? Or do you think the beard's working? <laughs> but as a way to sort of break him, yeah. when he's doing the sort of logic questions and points, and then she interrupts him with, and you think the beard's working, just to like break his flow and knock him off his game is great. <laughs> yeah, they have so many good moments throughout. I think they work really well. And I like the way he interacts with Stamets as well. Hmm. When they do that engineering problem together, where it's... He's, I'm doing important work. It's like, well, if we don't get the spore drive back online, we won't be going anywhere and the galaxy will be destroyed. <laughs> so you might as well help me. And he's like, good point. And it comes over. And then, and then they have a chat about Stamets' relationship and Spock gives him kind of this logical analysis of it based on his very limited observation. That's when Spock is used at his best, where he just lays everything out and helps people see what's kind of right in front of them. He often does that to Kirk or McCoy and 
you know, he'll just say the obvious thing that is eluding people. No, definitely. It was nice seeing him interact with the rest of the crew in that way. And then zipping forward right to your sort of final moments, it is believable that he would want to go with Michael at the end and with the Discovery crew. Like I say, the only thing is you as a viewer know well, this ain't really going to happen or this ain't going to be permanent. This does happen. It ain't going to go the whole way. So that took me out a little yeah. bit. The fact he was there with her and protected her and followed her out in the shuttle, I thought was great because that's, of course, what he would do. And then to zip right forward, getting him. Your scenes at the beginning of the season are Burnham trying to reach out to Spock and sort of talking to him. And then at the end of the season, you get the very opposite. You get him talking, monologuing off to Burnham, which I thought was a nice way of sort of bookending it. Yeah, and obviously we all knew he wasn't going to go into the future. Mm. And even if he did, it would have to be a finite thing because we all know how he ends up in this timeline. So it's enough of a stretch that he was involved in this galaxy-ending plot before he was even under Kirk's command. (laughs) It's like, wow, this guy's done a lot and he's only at the kind of start of his career and he has all these adventures to go with Kirk. But if he'd had some adventures in the 31st century or whatever year they go to and then comes back, oh my God, this guy has seen some stuff. It was just never going to happen. But I thought it was kind of clunky how it actually happened where he's sitting there and like, oh yeah, my, my shuttle's damaged, I, I can't come with you. There's absolutely no way I can get aboard Discovery now. Yeah, but then Pike's like, oh, we'll just beam you on board <laughs> the Enterprise. When it's safe, yeah. Discovery can't lower its shields to transport you. Okay, and the shuttle's buggered. Okay, tractor beam? Well, it was, <laughs> we can't transfer you this way, but we can lower our shields and let you on board. We could do it. They were just waiting until the battle had mm. subsided though, didn't they? And then, obviously, control was dealt with anyway. Mm before Discovery went to the future. So yeah, they could have, if they really wanted to. It's almost like Sp had agreed to go to the future and then regretted <laughs> it. He's looking for any excuse not to do it. He's like, oh no, no, I'm stuck. There's yeah, no way out. These, these yeah, engines, definitely like, not working. No, definitely work. not working. Yep. Yeah. Ooh, and away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I guess I can't come to the future. I'm gutted, so um, there's no way this can happen. <laughs> if only I could. But I do like the bit where he says that Michael is the balance that he struggles to achieve. And then she's basically said, don't worry about it. This galaxy is full of people that will reach out to you. Soon you'll meet a guy called James T. Kirk. (laughs) He's going to be your best pal. Forget about me because you'll never talk about me ever again anyway. So forget about me. Not in front of others. No. It was this whole weird bit where Sarek and Amanda showed up to say goodbye to Burnham once they heard that they were all heading into the future and leaving everyone behind. And Spock is on Discovery at that point. No no point that either of them just like, yeah, we'll pop in and say hello or goodbye (laughs) to our son. (laughs) That's true, actually. They show up for five minutes, give Burnham that, sorry to see that you're going, we'll miss you terribly. We're so connected to you. So by the way, Spock's like three decks down if you want to say hello. Or he's having his lunch right now, I don't know. No, no, we must go, we're double parked. No, no, there's no time. <laughs> Travel there for five minutes and then leave. <laughs> and they don't bother speaking to Spock. By the way, mum and dad, on your way out, could you use the Vulcan deep space network to communicate with Starfleet, please? Because ours is down. <laughs> it would be awfully good if you could arrange like a fleet of ships and just give Starfleet the heads up of this is exactly where we are and that we need help. That'd be great, <laughs> thanks. 
what do you mean you're just going to leave and not tell anyone? All oh, right, okay, yeah. cool. That's great, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> Could you not have done this over the hollow communicator, no? <laughs> One thing I would have liked to see more of is Spock and Pike's connection. Because you see almost none of that. Although, thankfully, we're getting a whole TV show where we'll get to see that. So that's fine. Yay. Problem solved. But they don't really spend that much screen time together, which is odd. Yeah, I suppose so. You get bits of how strong the relationship have been through some of the dialogue, but not that much. And I don't know if it was left open because of them doing the TV show or in their minds thinking they were going to do this TV show. I'm not too sure, because I'm trying to remember when Pike is saying bye to everyone, is it not just that he says, oh, there are no words or something when he's leaving? Yeah, yeah, something When like he that, does yeah. his big list, he gets to Spock and goes, Spock, there's no words kind of thing. <laughs> so they've obviously had a, a connection, but I don't know, like you say, they don't spend enough time one-on-one or bouncing off of each other. Not that Spock's the kind of character that does that sort of bouncing dialogue, I suppose. But you don't get enough of them together. But we've got an entire show to look forward to now, so yay. Yeah, it's going to be great, we hope. Fingers crossed. We hope. (laughs) Yeah, Spot, good addition. They used them well. And Ethan Peck's performance was really good. I remember at first I was trying to decide whether I liked his portrayal of Spock. And it's because it was a very different one. The thing is, someone articulated to me, recently actually about the difference between Zachary Quinto and Ethan Peck. And Zachary Quinto is he's a capable performer and he does a really good spot. But he's sort of playing Leonard Nimoy more than a little bit. At least in the first film he is. He's more playing Leonard Nimoy esque version of Spock. Whereas Ethan Peck is playing Spock. He's giving a proper fresh take on the character. Mm. at this point in his life and I don't want to say better or worse because they're both very good but I think I prefer to watch the Ethan Peck Spock because I feel like he has more to give Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it yeah I think it is a different way of doing the character it is earlier in his life it is a slightly broken down version of him and yeah not an impression is it it's that way I think you more click into it. the whole fact that he had a beard and everything and the hair, the scraggly hair and all that. You're sort of looking and going, I don't know. It doesn't look like Spock. It doesn't look like the character. And then you see him in those final scenes where he decides he's going to have a shave <laughs> and get a haircut and walk on the bridge. And then you go, okay, I can kind of see this now. There I can see is. that Spock. Yeah, I get it. It's like he's been there the whole time. It's just he's been hidden under a beard and, and scraggly yeah. hair. You, you do click with it a little bit more. But yeah, I get that point. I agree with you. Yeah. And I like the trip back to Talos 4 because it was the right kind of fan service that gave us a reason to be there. It let us see updated versions of things from the past. They do change Pike's relationship with Vina, though, as in it's a much more lost love type thing to it. I don't know how well you remember the cage, but he's very hostile to her throughout the whole episode because she is part of that prison that he's in. So when they interact and he's much softer with her and he acts as if it's someone that he loved that he's lost, you don't get that from the cage. 
I think the cage plays it more as a deception. Once he knows more of what's going on, more he knows it's a disguise. It's kind of like that betrayal. Yeah. It's like this is part of the thing that's hidden. It's all an illusion. And then you don't get that from here. So yeah, I agree with you. They have sort of changed it a little bit. And the Telosians feeding on emotion, they didn't do that before either. We want your negative emotions because they sustain us. That's not really what it is. It wasn't a big issue. It was just, if you're going to draw attention to the fact that it's a sequel to The Cage by literally showing clips from Mm. that episode and the previously on, which was a great touch. It's like, wow, the Enterprise looks like crap. This version. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? It's not even the clips from the remastered mm. Cage episode they use. It's the original. So yeah, it's like, wow, space travel was a lot different <laughs> years ago. It didn't look as quite as good. And wow, Pike's changed a lot. And so has Spock. And so has everyone else. It's a sequel to it, but they've changed elements of it because they want it to be about that kind of emotional journey, I guess. And... I think it worked within the context of the episode itself. I think if they hadn't reminded me of the cage by doing the previously on as a bit of a cute throwaway, I would have been more inclined to accept it because then I would have been encouraged to remember actually what went on in the cage. Yeah, I ended up watching the cage before watching that episode. Not when we've done the rewatch recently, but before to kind of remind myself of it because I'd only watched it once ages ago kind of thing. So I had to watch it again to kind of pick up what was going on and yeah i agree with you they did kind of change it a little bit but i don't know if it's because they needed to make it more reasonable that they would help in any way like they didn't have much sort of skin in the game kind of thing they didn't have a lot on the line for themselves at that point to help out so you need to tie that together and even though it was obvious what was going on when it was Cut the transporter beam, trust us, whatever. It's like, well, they're going to make an illusion, aren't they? It's going to, yeah. And even though it was so predictable, I really loved the way they did it, where Burnham says, say goodbye, Spock. <laughs> and he says, goodbye, Spock. And then just vanishes when on the Section 31. It was a great line. Great. It's yeah. just such a good... I think that's the moment where I'm like, ah, I can see he's playing Spock. That's that deadpan <laughs> delivery, the way that Leonard Nimoy would do it. That's, yeah, there he is. Because up until that point, the whole point is his mind is completely destroyed he's trying to rebuild it and he's very frustrated and you're seeing these perspectives on the memories and there's the idea of do you see murder here it's like well no but i'm seeing a memory but how do i know this is a real memory (laughs) but obviously i never would believe that spock would murder anybody so that whole thing was just out there anyway it was never going to happen but I'm surprised at that point. It's like how do we know you're remembering this correctly at least wasn't suggested and the thing about that that confused me a bit was the later on when Saru's like, oh, by the way, I've looked at the evidence. It turns out they were all holograms. Look at the thermal imagery. It's not real people. There you go. Solved. And it's like, did no one do that earlier on? <laughs> not one person did. Oh, let's look at the thermal here and go, oh, hang on. <laughs> yeah. Those aren't real people. <laughs> well, I guess 31 were covering it up at that point. So no one was looking at it. It was just taken as gospel that this is what happened. And the only reason that they caught it mm. was because they had a vested interest in investigating it further, whereas others didn't. But yeah, you might think that, I don't know, number one would have caught it. 
Yeah, exactly. Like the crew of the Enterprise going, oh, well, we don't believe this footage. There's no way it must be doctored in some way. Oh, it's okay. We've checked. It's like, okay, well, as much as I'd like to take your word on it, we are going to check ourselves. Especially when you know that number one is investigating actively because she doesn't have anything else to do while the ship's being repaired. (laughs) Apparently she's just getting a hold of all this weaponry somehow. (laughs) She's just building herself some fighters and (laughs) all the escape pods are getting guns added to them. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Tell you, I don't want to be in the armed escape pod. It seems like you're going to be the one of the first to die. <laughs> it's like, okay, Mackenzie, you're assigned to escape pod 17 Alpha. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But good news, we've attached a phaser to the front of it. <laughs> don't worry, it's a high-yield assault phaser. So that'll be great. That'll really get their attention before they blow me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Your job is to annoy them before you die. <laughs> <laughs> You're the kamikaze squadron. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks. So glad I signed up. (laughs) Join Starfleet, they said. It'll be fun, they said. (laughs) You get to explore strange new worlds, they said. And then get blown up by a dangerous AI. (laughs) The weird thing about Control, actually, just going back to that, is its mission statement to preserve the Federation or act in the best interest of the Federation didn't seem to change because it still seemed to be the objective. It was just all these organic life forms are getting in the way, but surely the Federation needs those organic life forms because they form the basis of it. So was it trying to argue that the Federation is this abstract concept that doesn't (laughs) actually need people in order to exist? I mean, they don't have that argument. They don't have that debate. They don't ever bring it up. But is that what Control considers a Federation to be? Some kind of network of artificial intelligence that doesn't need people (laughs) yeah the federation is still there i mean there's no members of the federation because they're all dead but the federation is still there (laughs) yeah the principles are somehow still intact Mm. what no i know it's just a weird one but speaking of federation we have mr federation with pike and i thought what they did with him in the second half of the season was outstanding routinely The only really major Saru stuff that we got was when he let Tyler and Culber fight, Mm -hmm. which was funny. So to be fair, we've never had a former Klingon crew member come face to face with the man that he killed, who's now just been brought back from the dead. There isn't exactly (laughs) a regulation for this. So I thought I would just let them get it out of their system. And it's like, okay, I'll allow it. Just this one. Yeah, just that. And then there's a throwaway sort of thing from Burnham when she's explaining the mission to go off and find that Section 31 ship. That she goes, I thought you would have taken more convincing. It's like, oh, nah, it's all right. Just <laughs> yeah. go for it. <laughs> it's like, okay, fair enough. Yeah. No, it's fine. I've evolved now. I'm yeah. cool. I'm, I'm so chill about this now. I'm, I'm Do you want to wrestle? It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Pike... He has a number of really good moments in that second half of the season. The Vena stuff, I believed it because the actor sold it. They did it so well. But it was more around when they answer the question of why is this Pike? Why is this not just Captain mm. Spike or some other new character? It has to be Captain Spike, surely. That's funny. We don't want Captain Pike. We'll have Captain <laughs> Spike. There we go. That's different. Different guy. See? <laughs> yeah. Turns out he's just some acting captain of the Enterprise. Well, Pike was on holiday. So we can still have the Enterprise. <laughs> So, yeah, but when he goes to Boreth, which is mentioned in Deep Space Nine, Worf goes there after the Enterprise D is destroyed to talk to the clerics there and stuff. So is Worf kicking about with time crystals Ooh. at that point? Sometimes a reference is a bit weird because it's just 
Yeah, this monastery that everyone knows has time crystals and Worf goes there, but what effect does it have on him? So weird. But time crystals. It's how do we do this? Time crystals. Just weird mm. <laughs> techno babble. It's not even techno babble, it's just it's a time crystal. But the whole point of it is Pike's supposed to come face to face with this impossible choice that he has to make and he touches the crystal and he sees his future, which is not good for him. He ends up in the famous chair with the beeps. And I really loved that moment. You see the accident as the audience. It's a situation that's happening in the indeterminate future. He blows up or the place they're in blows up. And then next thing you know, he confronts himself in this chair. And it was really chilling hearing the artificial Mm. breathing apparatus, which you didn't get in the original version, obviously. It's just that, yeah, he's alive, but how alive and what kind of quality of life has he got and Pike seeing this horrific future and if you want this time crystal you have to accept that this will happen to you the fact that he's getting the emotions and the pain as well because he's sort of feeling his face as if his face got burned during the explosion he's feeling the whole thing yeah everything he just gets it all and then okay this is why it's worthwhile having Pike here now and it's the fact that yeah his future isn't going to go the way he wants it to and the choices that he makes are all leading to this point where he will end up in this situation that is far less than ideal. Of course, he doesn't know that he gets to go and live the rest of his life on Talos Four and enjoy the illusion of being fine. But he knows that he's going to have a few years at least of horrific pain and being trapped within himself and unable to articulate anything. And, and the fact that he just accepts that because... He joined Starfleet knowing that there were risks and he has to accept them. And I I like where he Mm. sort of reaffirms his own motivation to himself, where he says, you believe in service, sacrifice, compassion, and love. And it's just that these are my values and I'm not going to let the fact that I get unlucky in a few years affect that. And it's that, okay, yeah, we need this thing to save the galaxy. In order to save the galaxy, I have to accept this horrible horrible outcome and i'm gonna do it because that's the kind of guy i am and it's just such a great moment oh definitely no it's, it's really good it's the fact that he, he not that he chooses his fate but he chooses to accept it and knows it's for the better yeah and then it comes up later mm. on so it's not like he goes back to work and just completely forgets about it and he has this whole thing about well maybe this torpedo won't yeah. blow up as long as i'm in the i know, room I, know I don't I know die in this room so if i stay this here that's it. fine yeah <laughs> so we're just gonna have a tv series of pike just putting himself in mortal danger every week because he knows this isn't the situation that kills it's gonna him. be reckless pike <laughs> flying headfirst into danger every week well they kind of did that in agents of shield didn't they where they had the okay our future's inevitable so i'm just going to pour out a few beakers of acid with one water and we'll see if I pick the right one. <laughs> yeah. I forgot <laughs> about that. Yeah. that. It's just... <laughs> one of these beakers is acid. One of these beakers is beer. I wonder which is which. <laughs> just does that all the time. It's like, no worries. And he's just a thrill seeker, just doing atmospheric mm. skydives and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. Just... <laughs> No, I don't think he will. I think he'll still operate with this in the back of his mind every time. And then there will probably be a situation during the series that looks like it might be this, but isn't. Oh, yeah. There'll be a fake out warp core (laughs) breach kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be like, I recognise this room. (laughs) 
I've been in this room before. I'm wearing these clothes. Every episode will be him walking into that room and going, oh no. <laughs> Why do you never visit engineering, Captain? Captain, we're updating the uniforms. You're wearing this now. Nope, not wearing that. <laughs> no. <laughs> I die in that. Again, they did that in The Flash, didn't they? Where it's like, well, okay, why don't we just burn these clothes? Or whatever that you say you're wearing. Like, why don't you just get rid of this coat? Then you can't die in it. <laughs> nah, the universe will point him in that direction, I guess. But that was great, that. And I really liked seeing his command style and how it differed during the battle. Because there was lots of little bits and pieces that were coming in that showed how good Anton Mount is. You would hear a bit casually reports, it's like, such and such are dead on deck six or whatever, and you just see his face sink a little bit. It's like, oh, some of my crew are mm. dead. And then, but he has to get right back to it. Or after Cornwell kills herself, kind of, or sacrifices herself, kills herself is a bit too crass as a term. When he gets out of the turbo lift and it's right back to work, the ship needs him, the mission needs him. Just little mm. subtleties like that were great. It's that hold he does before he walks out onto the bridge. He yeah. kind of holds, listens, hears about the casualty reports, and then jumps right in and starts giving the orders yeah. again and picking everything back up. He's got that moment of hesitation where it's, I don't think I should be doing this, and then and he goes and carries on. Yeah. It's very human, because you see all these captains before that are perfect in a crisis. You, you never really see Janeway pause for a second in the midst of combat, or even Picard, or anyone like that. So seeing that, and it's like, no, I recognise I have a job to do. And it's also the reaffirmation that Pike is not a soldier. He's not a combat Hmm. guy. But he has to be in this moment. Well, this is the crew that sat out the Klingon War. This is the crew that weren't around for that. You know, the best, the idealists, the dreamers, the thinkers. And then they're put into the battle. Yeah. I really like that bit where he's arguing with Cornwell about that. It's like, well, that's why you sat out of the war, because we needed the best of Starfleet to survive. And he's like, all right, cool. Good point. <laughs> and gets back to the mission after that. Pike was so well used in this. And there's sort of the, the way he delivers the, we're fine, but we lost the mm. Admiral. And that situation is really contrived. It's We have a blast door that can only be manually sealed from the inside. There is no handle on the other side that we could use. Or we couldn't wrap a wire around it and pull yeah, it. Yeah, that's a hell of a good blast door because he stands right on the other side <laughs> of it as well. It's not like, oh, I'm going into the turbo lift and I am getting out of here. It's like, I'm going to watch from the other side of this glass door. It's like, no, 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 no. I've got an idea. Let's make the whole ship out of this material. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, because they close the door and then the torpedo detonates and it localises the damage to wherever the torpedo is. Why is this one door stopping it from ripping apart half the ship? It seems like if you had made a few more bulkheads out of that material, you'd have been doing all right. Yeah. I have no argument with the Mm. moment itself. Mm. I think it works really well, and Cornwell's sacrifice works really well. It's just the contrived nature of, well, someone has to be in here to pull this handle, but we can only be done from in here for some reason, because... We've manufactured a situation where we can only seal ourselves inside the room with the dangerous yeah, thing. Yeah, we don't have the hydraulic pump on both sides, or we don't have the time to tie a bit of string around this handle. It seems that if you had put something in there, you could have pulled that handle down with a bit of rope, and then the door would have come down, cut the rope, and it would have been shut anyway. So, I don't know. Again, you've got to allow them these little conceits to try and get stuff done. I do think that the turbo lift should have zooped away rather than him watching on the other side of that door. Because it did sort of make it seem like, that. oh, really? Is it really going to blow that big a hole in the ship if this bottom half of the door is open? In comparison to him yeah. standing right on the other side of the door as if there's no risk whatsoever. Also, the turbolift conveniently goes there. Yeah, the turbolift conveniently goes straight to this door. 
But maybe that's part of his thing going, well, I know I don't die through this situation, but you could still be pretty badly injured through this, mate. <laughs> you really should get back to the bridge and out of the way. Yeah. Keep back. Yeah. It's weird that they don't test that theory, though. It's like, well, I'm just going to stand here for a bit and see what Again, happens. good to see a bold Starfleet Admiral, because like we were saying in the last episode about the uh, caretaker captains all being useless, normally the Starfleet Admirals are equally as bad and evil and demented, so... Getting one that's like... Yeah, normally we get the bad morals. The bad morals, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but Cornwell, it's like the only admiral in Starfleet as far as this show's concerned. <laughs> I mean, you do see other admirals kicking about all the time, like as holographic stuff, but she's the one that's out there doing everything and she's involved in everything. It's, I'm your liaison to Section 31 for this scene. I'm on the Enterprise bringing it to you. I'm on Discovery telling you what to do, etc. It's just everything. Mm. She's always there. She's like their admiral. <laughs> But I guess that's, yeah, okay, we've built this character and we're building her up to an end point and all that stuff. So she's kind of explaining the whole practicalities behind how Starfleet actually works and with control and with Section 31 and all that stuff. So the control AI and she's kind of trying to apologise for it. It's it's fine because the AI is always recommending stuff, but it always comes down to individual decisions. Always comes down to rational thought appearing in. We assess the information we're given and then make a decision. It doesn't make the decision for us. It's kind of like how AI should work, although you haven't noticed that it has been making decisions. You haven't noticed that it's doing all these things in the background. Yeah. Yeah. I love that sequence where they were flying through the minefield and everyone was just barking out random manoeuvres. Like, we have to keep it guessing so it can't predict what we're doing. Yeah, because it knows all our tricks, so if we start throwing a bit of randomality into it, it'll start working. Yeah, that was cool. It was really cool. Yeah, we'll get to the last couple of episodes as a whole shortly, but the last bit of character stuff I wanted to talk about was Stamets and Culver mm. and the fact that they break up and then they seem like they're going to stay breaking up and the whole idea is Culver is like, I need to find out who I am now. I need to go and do my own path. And I've been offered a job on the Enterprise, which means that the Enterprise will have a doctor who has been resurrected on it and that's never a thing that's mentioned again. And then Stamets gets injured and... He's like, oh, no, no, it's fine. I found my way back to you. I'm coming with you to the future, and we belong together. And I think what they're going for is fine, as in they really have to work to find each other again, find that balance, find that relationship. But I think it's too inconsistently portrayed. It just doesn't get enough attention for it to seem believable. So it just seems like Colbert is changing his mind every five minutes. I think it gets lost in the bigger story and the action and the pace that they're going for in certain episodes, especially towards the end that they don't have enough time to sit and dwell. There's a particularly good scene between Jet Reno and Colbert where they're chatting about the weddings, her with her wife and him with Paul, where it's the different, I was going to say neuroses, but that's probably the wrong thing, but of all the different conditions that they put on the weddings, the denominational shuttle parking yeah. and the do not playlist for the wedding dances. I liked that scene where she was going, you don't realise that you've been given a second chance with this person who was perfect for you and trying to get him to see the other side you get a little scene where stamets is running about barking orders about getting the manufacturing of the suit done and you get a little moment with them then where they're sort of talking to each other but it just seems like a gap a real gap i'm trying to think of the other scene i think there was the one in the mess hall as well, where he walks in and then Stamets kind of leaves and gets up to go. and Culber's with his new pals kind of thing. Yeah, walks in. Yeah, exactly. Trying to discover himself his new pals on the ship that's got, say, 250 <laughs> people on it or however it works. It seemed a bit inconsistent 
but I think that's because of the amount of time that they had available to do it. Because yeah. even Stamets is trying to come up with different options of what he can mm-hmm. do, because he's talking about he's going to go and do lectures or he's going to be on a star base. That's the kind of things that he's talking about doing. He's wanting to do something different as well. Yeah. And thinking, well, he's got to get off the ship. He's got to escape from that as his option to go out and find someone else if he needs to, to try and break up because everywhere that he goes on the ship, he's going to be thinking of Paul the whole time. Yeah. I liked Reno a lot, actually, mm. when she was around. Although it's weird because they rescue her in the first episode and then she's gone for quite a long time. <laughs> then she disappears again, kind of just reappears here and there. She's this abrasive genius. I love the get this to Commander Burnham and it's like, I'm going, I'm going, get off my ass. And get off my ass. <laughs> I love that, yeah. <laughs> she just kind of catches yeah. herself. I, I, I love that character. I think she's great. And like you say, it's a shame because she goes missing for a big chunk, but then when she comes back in, it's like, oh, this character, oh, great. And playing her... Yeah, it's like, I've been here the whole time. Yeah, but not... Yeah, she's been here the whole time, but doing stuff in the background. She's best when she's in with sort of like Tilly and Stamets, and they're spashing ideas against each other. I like that sort of dynamic that they've got going. Yeah. Because like you say, the other ones are more prim and proper, and then she'll just come out and say what she thinks right away with no filter. Yeah. And then when she was part of that whole, I'm coming to the future with you because we've all bonded so much. <laughs> It's like, you haven't built this as well as you think you have. <laughs> or you're aware of it and just hoping that we'll go with it anyway, because it is a, we're all Discovery crew. We're going to ride our ship into the future. We're going to face it all together. <laughs> it's a nice moment. And I would maybe believe it more if it was, say, Voyager's crew that were doing that. By the end of Voyager, you do believe that they are a family because they did put the work in to some extent. Deep Space Nine, you believe that they are more than just colleagues. In Discovery, not quite there yet, much as you would like it to be, writers. Yeah, the ship has had a rotation. Voyager has the crew that it's set off with. They've been together through all of that time. Discovery has still had rotations of crew coming on and off through its whole lifespan. It's not as if it's had the same crew for its entirety. And I don't know if you'd believe that the lower decks people are like oh yeah totally i'm off to the future everyone <laughs> bye see you later on you know <laughs> because our specialist is tied to the future and needs to go and take discovery there so we're gonna go and keep our company nah maybe not <laughs> yeah it was all good i think maybe there's still time to have a bit of friction in the stamets culber relationship next season I guess the idea is that he's maybe fully on board with that concept right now, but it's not going to be quite as easy as he thinks it is Mm. in the future. Literally, in the future, there's still a lot that they can work through. So I'm willing to believe that that's not the end of their connection. That's not the relationship on a stable curve now. Yeah, I think it would be doing a bit of an injustice for them just to flip it back to season one and go, it's all perfect in the household, everyone's happy, it's all good. Yeah. So the ending of the season, it all really starts when they jump to Poe's planet. I'm not going to try and say her full name because I can't. <laughs> I did try. I did actually try and practice. I can't do it. But Poe is a character that if you've never seen the short treks, you'll be like, who the hell is this? She features in the first of the short treks where Tilly comes across her and they bond over the fact that they feel like there's too much expectation placed on them by their family and all that kind of stuff. And she's a really good character. And the way that she brought in here, I think it's easy enough to go with it, as in if you're happy to accept that she and Tilly met at some point in the past, 
It's fine. You get more out of it, though, if you've seen the short trek. And if you haven't, watch it because it's really good. But her appearance was really good. The way that she comes aboard, she's like, yeah, I'm a genius. I know how to do all this. We can magic up this time crystal charging cable quite easily. And then she steals a shuttle. I'm invoking diplomatic community to... (laughs) so I don't get arrested for stealing your shuttle. She, she was good to have her own. She is like the genius move of sorting out the charging, though that just reminds me of in that scene, you've got George Cho there who goes, so what we'll do is we'll fire this into a sun and we'll make it go supernova. And it's like, no, that's yeah. a terrible idea. And it's just going around everyone going, no, 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 that's a bad idea. Bad idea. I thought you said there were no bad <laughs> ideas. No, <laughs> well, that's that, a bad that's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just no. <laughs> It's her dispassionate, casual delivery of the, yeah. <laughs> You're suggesting that we kill millions of millions yeah. of people or whatever. And Change the outcome yeah. of all these solar <laughs> systems. Yep, yep, yep. That's exactly what I'm suggesting. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Let's get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> Thought there were no bad ideas. No, that was a bad one. The thing with Giorgio is you do get constant reminders of where she's from and that attitude that she carries with her everywhere, that superior attitude, the fact that she hates aliens she's racist she's bigoted she's just a horrible horrible person and it's every time that you start to think oh maybe she is mellowing a little bit you get that return to her being Mm. the empress again she cares about burnham she has a vested interest in burnham's survival but she also really hates saru and i really like when the culber shows up to talk to stamets in a bit and she picks up on the vibe immediately and she loves the awkwardness. She loves the tension. She's like, oh, this is brilliant. I'm hmm. loving this. In my universe, Stamets, you're bisexual. We had a lot of fun together. And he's like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's good. And obviously she gets to fight because Michelle, you got to fight. It's just the simple fact of it. No, definitely. And those fights were fantastic when they did them. They were really, really well done. The Inception fight where they're on the walls and everything. Yeah. The tumbling corridors yeah. that go around is like gravity failure or whatever the <laughs> reason is for them to do it. But yeah, very trippy, very well done. Even the fight down on the planet when they're sending Burnham's mum back with the sphere yeah. data and they get through the fight on the planet there. That was another good one as well. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh is mm. good at combat stuff. Yeah. That's what she's good at. That's where she kind of cut her teeth, I guess, mm. and... They just have to give her an opportunity to do that. So. <laughs> Every time, no. Really, really good. Sorry, I kind of took us off on a tangent there because we were talking about the finale yeah. that you just reminded me of that scene. Yeah. be interesting to see if George Wold sees the 31st century as an opportunity to rule. She'll get to put her flag down in the midst of the chaos and get to be in charge or think yeah. she could be in charge. What do the last remnants of life in the galaxy need? They need a ruler to band them together. Yeah. They just strong hand. Although they're all disgusting aliens, so that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the finale. So we get the time crystal, we get that charged. It takes however long it takes, and we keep managing to cut the time in half somehow every time. It's like, that's against the laws of physics. I'll just do it anyway, and then... We'll open the slots on this containment thing a little bit wider. It was one of them. It's like, well, why would you have that far closed in the first place? It's like, yeah. what are you lot doing? Well, it's to stop all the time energy leaking out and showing them the future, which... It shows them that future where everybody dies and Leland kills everyone. It reminded me of Galaxy Quest, actually. Mm. You know, towards the end, where they're heading through the, the black hole or whatever it is. And then the alien wanders in and just shoots everybody, and then they reverse time by mm. 13 seconds to stop it. It reminded me of that unintentionally, I guess. <laughs> or maybe it was an intentional nod, who knows. But it's that whole 
Pike had to accept the inevitability of his future, but Burnham sees a potential future. Again, inconsistency in how it's... Is it because she didn't pick it up? If I pick up the time crystal after I see this... Yeah, she didn't physically pick it up, (laughs) or because he took it from where it had grown, whereas she's taking it just... Like physically picking it up, I don't, I don't know. Is the rule only when you harvest the crystal and not when anyone touches it after that point? Time crystals—they're mysterious. That's the whole point. Let's write down a time crystal rule book. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't one. There we go. That was easy. So the finale run of episodes. We talked about in the last episode the adherence to canon and how canon is something that they shouldn't necessarily stick to. But I have to admit that the fanboy inside me goes, "Call the Enterprise. Tell them to come and." Rendezvous with us. I'm like, yes, we're going to see the Enterprise. <laughs> this bit earlier in the season it implied that the Enterprise being damaged was part of this whole mystery. Mm. And they would f- maybe find something when they were repairing it that would give them a clue. But now nah, it just gets fixed. So are we supposed to believe that Burnham damages it so that Pike takes command of Discovery? <laughs> <laughs> that would be neat. Don't know. I'd have liked that little cutscene. Why not? <laughs> Throwing yeah. a wrench into the warp core or something to cause them a yeah. breakdown, whatever it would work. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a bit of me that was like, "Oh, we're actually going to get to see it," because I thought they would spend the whole time wimping out that we'd maybe get an exterior shot of the Enterprise, but then you'd never get to see the inside of it. You would see it fighting, but yeah. Pike would stay on board Discovery for that point. But once they showed it, it was like, "Oh, great!" The way they did the corridors and the bridge set is just incredible looking I think we said on the last episode and the importance of being on the Enterprise wasn't dialed down as well everything from the music to just the reverence that everyone was giving it you had that moment Mm. where number one says to Pike welcome home captain when they get on board the bridge and then Mm. you get that big wide shot of the bridge and it looks stunning so colourful it's a nice update of the original it's like yeah this is what it would look like if they were just making it now and it's such a loving creation of this up-to-date version, as opposed to the Kelvinverse movies, where it's all just white and sterile looking. Everyone says it looks like the Apple Store, and it kind of does. But this, it looks like the Enterprise. It looks like the Enterprise bridge. And from the moment they stepped on the bridge, I was like, oh yeah, this is great. Give us a TV show. (laughs) And then they eventually did. Yeah, give us a TV show. You've spent all the money on this, now make something with it. Yeah, I mean, you can't make something that looks this good and then not give us any more of it ever again. Yeah, you can imagine the production crew going, you built all this just for two episodes, (laughs) however many minutes it's on screen. (laughs) Let's say it's maybe on screen for 20 minutes total or something like that. And it's like, no, you wouldn't spend all that on doing it. You wouldn't like to be the person wrecking that set after all that time. Oh, let me just smash this to pieces now. I was like, oh, God. I'm not taking this down. Leave it. Leave it. It's, it looks beautiful. Yeah, we spent all this time. But it was the door sounds, yeah. the design, the whistling bridge, everything. It's good fan service. You did good. You did good production team. Well done. And it was even little things because one thing that's really annoying me about, that's become a staple of Star Trek since the Abrams era movies is they changed the phasers, both hand and ship phasers, to more like Star Wars blasters. I'm just going to say it. As in, the, you know, the broken rapid fire type situation. Whereas in these episodes, the Enterprise has beam phasers again. And the tan phasers, they're still. It's so they can have more engaging looking gunfights. But I always thought that was a bit more of a stamp of Star Trek, as in we have these beam weapons. It suggests a more defensive approach as well, because maybe they are a little bit less accurate or you can fire less or you have to make a statement with your shots rather than just peppering them with discovery still has non-beam phasers although i think it had beam phasers miraculously in that episode that we'd just never seen before 
unless those were the phasers that were hitting it, I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe you've got the option to have it as a solid beam or a broken beam, depending on what you're doing. Yeah, maybe. The thing is, because you're firing at ships that have got shield, the thing is, no matter where you hit on the ship, you're wearing down the shield, and using a constant yeah. beam would probably be a better way of doing that than an intermittent hit at it. Having that constant pressure on it would help a shield break, yeah. so I think beams make more sense. Yeah, but I was loving it, because it is a very Star Trek thing, the beam phasers, and then mm. it had the same sound effect that the original series had as well. And <laughs> as much as we talked about, well, yeah, don't be so strict with canon, Let's not explain why there's not holographic displays. I mean, they even had that. Don't worry. There's no holographic communications on this ship, and there never will be. Don't <laughs> worry about that. <laughs> well, the next captain, will he not have something to say about that? It's like, no, that's Pike's standing order. That's it. No more holographic communications on this ship as long as I live. <laughs> so it was Kirk that tried to kill him because he wanted his holo communicator pack. Oh, God. It's <laughs> a weird conspiracy theory. That. We've ripped it out because it's faulty. The good news is they're replacing half the saucer section when we go back to dock, so they'll be able to put it all back in. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny, actually. It's This whole season took place over months, and in those months, the Enterprise was only just fixed at the end of the season. Then it immediately goes back <laughs> into space dock because it is torn to pieces. <laughs> like, oh, we just fixed this damn thing. Well, it's particularly the final episode. Basically, it was a one-hour pitched battle and as much as i say that star trek isn't about violence it shouldn't rest on its action i feel like it was earned for the whole season we had these non-violent type stories for the most part it was very star trekky stories we're going to use words we're going to use reason we're going to use science we're going to use all this to get around these problems and it's like now it's the last episode we're going to have discovery and the enterprise in a pitched battle that takes up the whole episode and i was all for it because We'd built up to it and we'd been waiting for it and the show had earned doing that, I think. Definitely. It was shot just amazingly well. Amazing special effects. Just really well crafted and put together and it had earned a space battle. It made sense that Control would get all these ships and just try and take Discovery out at that point. It just made sense within the story and the way they put it over on screen, I think, was done as well as they could, definitely on the budget that they've got. It was worthy of a closing act of a film. My only thing I would say is that they do that movie thing, that TV thing of putting time limits on stuff, and then we'll stand and have a speech that takes up a good chunk of that time. (laughs) Time is of the essence because there's only five minutes until Control gets here. Great. I shall now take the next three minutes to do a speech. (laughs) (laughs) There was elements of that. There was bits of the fight that just logistically didn't make much sense to me where you get that great shot of Burnham going into the suit, the Red Angel suit for the first time, and then she does the sort of Olympic sprint out and all the shuttles are forming like the protective shield around her. As they leave, they're rotating the ships around so that she doesn't get hit, and that's great. But then once she's out of the way a little bit, it's only her and Spock. The rest of the ships are gone and out of the way. And it's like, why is no one attacking her now? Did she just get far enough away that they forgot about her? And it was like, oh, well, we don't need to worry about her now because she's all the way over there. Let's get back to fighting the ship. We found this massive piece of debris that we can A, stand on, and yeah. B, land a shuttle on. <laughs> land a shuttle on, and no one will bother us over here. <laughs> Well, they had the line, we're at a safe distance. Yeah, well, it was a safe distance for opening the sort of aperture thing, wasn't it? It wasn't like we're at a safe distance (laughs) where none of the ships are going to focus any attention on us now whatsoever. 
<laughs> that bit for me was like, oh, hang on. And then again, it's like, there's no time. We need to get things done. But they're still doing speeches and chats. And yeah. you're getting the revelations. You're getting the bits like that speech from Spock, like we've said earlier on, where he's saying, you know, you've been sort of a guiding light. You've helped me keep balance. You've always pulled me back when I've needed it kind of thing. You get that, which is like great yeah. moments. But at the same time, you're like, there is a battle going on right now. This isn't the moment. This isn't the time to do this. Get <laughs> on with it. Yeah. And it was a very differently structured space battle to what they would seen in Star Trek. Because a lot of the time when it's ship to ship, it's the fire phasers at each other. And particularly in later Berman era Star Trek where Voyager fighting something. And it's, they'll do the shake. Everyone knows <laughs> how to shake on Star Trek. That's something you learn. You learn that shake in unison. And then they shake the camera at the same time and everyone knows how to do that. That's just how they do it. And then someone will say, shield's down to 78%. And then they'll get hit again. 43%. And then they'll get hit again. 36%. How are these decrements working? I don't understand. (laughs) You're only getting hit a little bit here. We're venting atmosphere on deck 11. Yeah. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything because we don't see it. Four casualties reported on deck three. Casualty reports are coming in. It's like, I'm going to read these in the middle of this battle. It's cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we have a hull breach, but it doesn't mean anything because you don't see it and it doesn't impact anything. But it's when you see externally, it's like, oh, look, there's that piece of the Enterprise they said it's just gone missing. Yeah, there's a, there's a big yeah. hole in the front of the Enterprise. It's like I said earlier on, the graphics in that space battle were great. It was way more dynamic than you would get. There was debris, they were breaking through things as the ships were moving. And you had a lot of small things that the camera could follow, so you get good close-ups of the Enterprise and Discovery as they're fighting mm. away. They also they move like you would expect starships to move, as in they're not quick so the manoeuvres feel very deliberate. Mm-hmm. It's chaotic, and it's meant to be chaotic because you, know, you have no idea what's going on. There's so much crap to keep track of. And you get that impression from the people involved in the battle where Pike's getting report battered at him from left, right, and centre, and he's like, uh, target phasers on this guy because I can see this guy, so do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll fire at this guy. That's fine. It's like, uh, Discovery needs us to back them up while they lower their shields for three minutes. Okay. Uh, we'll fly over here now. <laughs> They're just reacting to little bits, and it's as chaotic as it feels like it needs to be. And you're not supposed to be able to follow it perfectly because there is so much going on, and nobody's following it. Nobody involved in it is following it. Yeah, that was one of my things. Is it? It wasn't as linear that you could follow what was going on. Occasionally, you did sort of lose track of. Oh, hang on, are they in trouble? Are they not in trouble? Are they winning? are the good guys winning at the moment i can't tell you could sort of lose a bit of perspective on it for parts but they always manage to reel you back in well it's when you have pike standing having a debate in this room where the torpedo is there's a battle raging on around them but i do like Mm. the fact that when he gets there he excuses number one because we need someone in command up there that knows what they're doing Mm. so it's yeah we can't both be in this room at the same time because you're needed up there if i'm down here so that's again another sensible command structure decision as I was re-watching it, it was only the second time I'd watched it. It was at the weekend there before, before we recorded, obviously. And I wish I'd been able to watch it for the first time all over again because I do remember the first time mm. I watched it, I was like, this is incredible. And then it sort of tries to blind you with spectacle in the way that it hides the fact that this whole quickie explanation about Burnham jumping into these different time periods to tie up the loose ends and put the signals in place and so on doesn't make a lot of sense and is rushed. 
So it's like, but look at the special <laughs> effects. It's like 2001 when she's gone through the wormhole. How cool does that look? Don't worry about the fact it doesn't really make sense. Yeah, you're just along for the ride, aren't you? Look at these beautiful yeah. visuals. Ignore the man behind the curtain. Yeah. It's, and it's uh... like, well, look, there she is in episode two, and there she is in episode four. It all makes sense now, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> doesn't no. it, though? Because <laughs> I don't know what she's doing. I don't understand why she's, yeah. But again, the wormhole effects were amazing as well. It was just, yeah, visually, it was just like nothing I've ever seen, even in Star Trek films. Mm. As she was travelling through for the first time, the sort of spark effect as she was going through that. Yeah, very uh, 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very neat. Sort of the, like, welding sparks. I don't know how to describe it any better than that. With sort of flakes going up. And then the flattening effect as well was cool. Mm. Where it showed everything kind of collapsing in on itself from Burnham's perspective. And then flipping to the other side of it as she goes round, yeah. Yeah, great stuff. Just great stuff, visually speaking. Narratively speaking, not so much. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, it, it does work. It works. It blinds you with that spectacle. It covers up the fact that they haven't really answered their questions properly and that things probably change mid-season to think about how this all worked and all that stuff. But other than that, it was great. And then Discovery makes it to the future with Burnham leading them there and Pike saying goodbye, my friends, my family. And I believe that. I believe that he is attached to at least some of those people. Yeah. And then, interestingly, you don't find out what happens to Discovery. You get the hint that they're okay. So there's no reaction shot of Discovery appearing in the future. All you get is that signal. I even thought there might have been something at the end of the credits. I remember when I watched it the first time, I was like, well, there's going to be a post-credits film styly single shot of Discovery emerging next to a planet or something yeah. happening. Burnham waking up on a planet. Any sort of thing like that. Something unexpected. And it doesn't. It finishes on that piece on the Enterprise. Yeah, it almost feels like we're abandoning this other concept and you're going to follow these guys now. That's almost what that ending feels like. It did almost seem like a passing of the torch. Like if at that point they had said, oh, Star Trek Discovery is now cancelled however we are going to do this christopher pike enterprise show and that was the episode where you would hand over because you pretty much (laughs) lost one ship and finished on the bridge of the other and in hindsight knowing that they're doing the show you'd look at those final scenes on the enterprise like of course they're going to do something (laughs) with these characters why wouldn't you you sweat for a year it'd be insane Yeah, we'll just make everyone yeah. wait because we don't know what yeah. we want to do. We need discussions to happen here. But you look at it and you go, of course they were going to do something yeah. with it. But I don't know how far through the production process of Discovery they got renewed for their third season. But you could see how they could have used that as just that, okay, and now Discovery's gone and this explains why. It's not in the timeline. It's not been mentioned before. And, yeah, that, and that bit didn't that. really sit right with me. I mean, I would have been happy for Discovery to continue to exist in the 23rd century because I don't really care about all the stuff that other people seem to care about. Mm. We had this whole extended sequence where Spock says, I think we should just never mention Discovery, Michael Burnham, the Spore Drive, any of this stuff ever again. Mm -hmm. We should forget it ever happened. It's top-level classified under penalty of treason. If anyone breathes a word of this for the next thousand years, they'll be killed. And that's it. We're never going to speak of this again. I'm never going to talk about my sister, so Kirk's never going to find out about Michael Burnham because I'm not going to tell him because I always keep these secrets. (laughs) It's unnecessary, especially when you had them all being interviewed and they were quite clearly lying. 
So it's this whole, were you there at that point? It's like, yeah, the spore drive just blew up. Everything just boom. And all these Enterprise crew members, everyone that was there, it's like, mm-hmm. you were there? You were there during this battle? What happened there? Why did the Enterprise come back in pieces? What happened? And oh yeah, the spore drive blew up. Mm-hmm. It must have uh, damaged the Enterprise maybe <laughs> in this very specific way. But we detected all these weapon signatures in this area of space. It's like, yeah, well, your sensors must be wrong. And they're willing to accept this. There is a point where Tyler's like, yep, that's exactly what happened. And then you're in charge of Section 31 now. We know that's not what happened, but we're going to go with it. It's such a weird interview scene, I think. It was an odd way of doing it. I thought it was going to be more on Starfleet side saying, okay, great, you've got the story straight. We will never talk of this again. If anyone interrogates you like I've done, those are the answers that you're going to give. Doing it more from the Starfleet side rather than Pike and the Enterprise crew covering it up. Going, yeah, yeah, that's totally what happened. Yeah, it was a spore drive and control was like blowing stuff up. Yeah, there we go. Done. (laughs) It's like, let's go. That bit didn't sit with me. I get that they've got to try or at least give the illusion that they're covering tracks, but it did seem not the best way to do it. But it worked to an extent. I don't think giving Tyler Section 31, oh, really? Did they wipe out absolutely everyone in Section 31? All of them are gone. (laughs) You're the only guy left. You're the acting yeah. head now because you're the only person that was actually there. Yeah. Tyler, you're the only one left, so you're in charge by default. Your first job, recruitment. <laughs> yeah, your first job, recruitment. You and Brian. Brian was on annual leave. He was on holiday when all the ships got taken <laughs> over. So you and Brian do recruitment now. It was just such a weird thing to do. Like you say, it would be okay if Starfleet were like, right, okay, we need to make sure no one ever speaks of this again. Everyone, you are bound by general order, whatever. You are now honour-bound never to speak of any of this again because we can't let this go out. But information is wider-reaching than these Starfleet personnel. You've got the bloody Klingons. So you've got the big Klingon capital ship that must have had, I don't know, thousands on it. And then you've got all the D7s that were there. All right, the Kelpians, they don't know what's going on because they just discovered space flight. (laughs) Yeah, they went from gardening to flying shuttles real yeah, quick. Yeah, so, okay, they're probably not going to say much. They don't know what a spore drive is, whatever. But the Klingons knew what the spore drive was. It was well known. Oh, yeah. It was well known during the war. It was that this is Starfleet's best weapon against us, and we don't understand it, and we want to capture it. So, well, are the Klingons just going to forget all about this? Maybe they're sworn to secrecy. Huh? Lorel's like, if anyone breathes the words spore drive in the Empire ever again, they'll be murdered. Who now know. I'll know that you've been talking about it because mm. I know everything. It's just this weird brush everything under the carpet ending that we're supposed to accept. And I'm okay with the fact that the spore drive eventually becomes a thing that can't be easily replicated because you have to genetically engineer someone to fly it. And that's something that they won't ever do. They won't ever want to do. So I'm okay with them. We're abandoning this project and it's kind of a forgotten footnote in history or it becomes classified for whatever reason. We don't need it to be under penalty of treason that a spore drive existed. Yeah, it does seem a bit on the extreme side. And it doesn't seem like the Klingons would go, oh, you know, that great secret weapon that you've got. Yeah, we won't ever think about that again. Yeah. I found it strange enough that the Klingons were the ones that were sitting on all the time crystals and they hadn't dabbled. (laughs) Or they had dabbled, but just given it up looking at anything involving time travel you're too dumb to do this whatever (laughs) yeah yeah we've decided we'll just keep punching people in the face and (laughs) 
we won't look more in depth at time travel at all the time travel monks are not happy with us and won't let us have any crystals and they can tell the future so we can't get any or whatever yeah i don't know quite what the <laughs> excuse is for the klingons not using it but anyway fair enough <laughs> but other than that it was fine and seeing spock in his beardless glory reporting for duty to see the final signal that kind of they're okay they're in the future but they're okay and then off they go on their mission yeah. that we'll see, perhaps. Perhaps. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> yeah. So, season three, we have a trailer now. What do you think of the trailer so far? The one trailer, that we, well, two trailers, actually, but more extensive one. I think it's it looks pretty good. It looks interesting. It's them coming across the sort of remnants of society and what situation they find themselves in. It looks like they sort of crash land, so they're going to be without all their gizmos and gadgets for a little bit, but looks like they get into action pretty quick, and yeah, they come across the remnants and try and rebuild in some way. I don't know if it's going to be sort of more along the lines of it was another Gene Roddenberry thing, but Andromeda, a captain out of time trying to restore the Commonwealth, which you could kind of parallel into being Mm. Starfleet, trying to get a federation back, trying to reunite all these planets together because i think there's lines in the trailer i don't think it was like we've heard rumors or whatever but it was more like oh yeah starfleet used to be a thing yeah it was like that badge you're wearing that doesn't have any meaning anymore or whatever it Mm. is manchester black from super in the role with this cat grudge the cat who's now following me on twitter by the way so that's (laughs) the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me the cat from Star Trek is following me. Well, hello to the cat. We did get teased with that pet, remember, at the Star Trek convention. Wilson mm. Cruz said, one of the Discovery crew will have a pet in the next season. And turns out <laughs> it's this new guy who I guess will be on the crew. And it's a cat. I was hoping for some bizarre alien creature, but no, it's a cat. <laughs> Not that I object to cats, of course, but I was hoping for some bizarre alien creature. Maybe it's not really a cat. Maybe it's a flurkin. there's a few things to pick out from the trailer there seem the federation exists but it's much smaller than it used to be there's some catastrophic event that's referred to as the burn which a lot of fan theories are pointing towards the omega particle if you remember that episode of voyager Mm. where it's this substance that can render warp drive impossible in an area of space so maybe in the intervening time something is set off a bunch of Omega particles and you can't travel between planets anymore because warp drive doesn't work. And then on comes Discovery with its spore drive. Which they're still using. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, now that it's the 31st century, it doesn't matter. It's not breaking with any canon. That's good in that sense, as in we can forge our own path. I was more thinking after them being told that every time they were using the spore drive, they were like destroying a little bit of the... uh... Yeah, maybe they reach an understanding. It's like it hurts a bit, but we're just going to outfit every ship that we can find with this technology now because it's the only way to get around. Sorry for the pain, guys. (laughs) So there's that. So that's what a lot of people think has happened. We're getting Trill characters. We're going to see a bit more of the Trill. We're going to get our first transgender, non-binary characters in Star Trek. There's a suggestion that one of the Trill characters is going to be Dax, which it sounds exciting on the surface, but then someone with the name Dax and that you don't do anything interesting with is meaningless anyway. So 
It'll be a nice extra little detail, I guess, if it happens to be Dax, but what difference is it really going to make, especially so far in the future? You know my feelings about bringing characters back in for no reason. It's nice to do name service and stuff, but you've got to have a bit of purpose about why is it this character and what does it bring other than making some fans very excited yeah. for a little moment when you announce it and then hating you when they don't like what you've done with them afterwards. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Dax is Dax is like the Doctor. Every iteration of Dax can be different. Mm. I would actually have been more interested in having a 23rd century version of Dax maybe show up in the Pike show because you know that mm. there is a version of Dax kicking about at that point. So I'd maybe be more interested in seeing that. But I've got a funny feeling they're going to do some weird stuff like the end of Picard when it's like this android body will eventually expire. I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up not being true and then you've got Picard in that timeline as well. (laughs) I hope not, because that would be dumb. Well, they said eventually expire, but they didn't say when it would eventually expire, did they? It was like... Roughly about the same time as your current one would have. Honest. Honest gov. (laughs) Whenever that is. Yeah. So that could happen. It it seems interesting, though. It's fertile ground that can be explored to a lot of extent. I really hope they seize the opportunity and give us something brand new and exciting and really fascinating to play with. No, definitely. The trailer looks really, really good. The fact that they won't be as shackled by canon, not necessarily that they have been, but they won't be as shackled in that way, I think is quite interesting to see what they do with this sort of unexplored period. They've got great characters in there. They've got really good characters to work on and work with, so... I'm not going to say that what they can do is limitless, but they've got so many options of where they can go, and I'm really interested to see what they've done. They need to beef up that bridge crew, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, they've got really good groundwork there with them, but you hope that they develop them further. But yeah. it kind of worries me when they go, oh, and we're bringing in this new character, and this new character, and this new character, and it's like, oh, but you're now going to have to spend all your time introducing these people, <laughs> and yet again, your established cast that you've got don't then get anything because... You're too busy going, oh, well, there's this guy that Burnham meets and he's going to take them through the thing. He's going to be the sort of guide. And then you start to lose those original characters again. Yeah. Let's hope the initial impression when they were all saying, we're all family and we're coming with you was, it's just going to be this 10 or so people that Mm. are going to the future on Discovery. So Discovery will be practically empty. It'll have 10 people. But it seems that there might be a full crew complement that went with them. We don't really know. It depends on the outcome of that battle, doesn't it? How many people yeah. have suffered during the battle? And from the looks of trailer, they've crash-landed as well. So, okay, yeah. you had a crew complement originally of, say, 250. 50 decided they would go back to Enterprise, or 150 decided they would go back to Enterprise, and then you've crashed, plus had a massive space battle. So how many have you lost in that period of time? These people that made this deep personal decision mm-hmm. to go to the future and then died seconds after arriving. Although at least it can say in your gravestone, born this year, died like a thousand years later. (laughs) I'm excited. I'm really excited to see what they do, and I really hope they take advantage of this opportunity. Am I underwhelmed by the prospect of another dark future? Yes, to be honest, because I kind of burned out on that in Picard. No one's ended up well at all in that eventuality. So we've got a situation where... Yeah, the Federation barely exists and something catastrophic happened and everyone's splintered and only Michael Burnham and the crew of Discovery can bring it all back together. I'm trepidatious about it. It does mean that when you watch anything like Picard, you're like, oh, I know this all turns up in mints after it all turns to violence. <laughs> well done, you saved the day today, Picard, but then the future, everything gets blown well, up. It depends when they establish that that all happens, though, because it can still be an immediate issue for Picard. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's not that in the early 25th century this happened. It could be like 100 years ago this happened or even 10 years ago Mm. or something. It's not going to affect any other show because it's not an immediate problem for them. It's sort of the equivalent of you can watch the movies as they were being made at the time. The original series cast were in movies, at least for a couple of them. And the events of those movies were still important because even though you know that the Klingons and the Federation achieved peace at some point, this is you seeing how it happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the stakes still mean something for the characters. But I don't think Picard's going to be building towards this situation because I think it will be much more a recent happenstance Mm. than anything else. I don't think it will be 600 years ago. This all went to crap and we're all stuck in this hellish situation where no planet can speak to another. It takes decades for a message to get there or something. I don't know. I could be wrong. We know almost nothing about it, which is nice. It's a good setup trailer, I think. Gives an idea of what we'll see, but... Leaves a lot of yeah. questions. So do you have any final thoughts about Discovery Season 2 as a whole? We've covered it. I really enjoyed the season overall. I think re-watching it actually clarified some things in my head that maybe I'd had floating about at the time. It was good to re-watch it, I think, before going into this next season. Like I usually do with these shows, I find bits to pick at, but I watched it and I enjoyed it overall. So, yeah, good work by those involved. Yeah, I thought the second season was... Good. Is it an improvement over the first one? I would say so. Yes, I think it's much better. Than, well, not much better, but I think it's quite a bit better than the first season. I think it has a greater sense of what it wants to be and is a bit more confident in the way it portrays its characters. And the fact that it was built around a central mystery worked well enough for what it was. There are issues that we've talked about extensively and it doesn't quite perfect the formula and they make some confusing decisions that may or may not end up paying off in some interesting way. We don't know, but I like the show. I think it's a worthy addition to Star Trek canon, and I'm really looking forward to the next season. I agree. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I normally just say everything incoherently. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, that was our discussion of Discovery Season 2, or the second half of it, anyway. We did the first half of it before. So a couple of Musical contributions to thank. So we've got the Le Orchestra Cinematique cover of the Discovery Main Theme. And once again, from the last one, Gorkum Burke Ejar, or Igar, once again butchering the pronunciation, his cover of the Discovery Main Theme, the piano one is his one. So one of those is playing me out as I speak. I don't know which one because I haven't decided yet. The beauty of time travel. I didn't take the time crystal, so I don't have to accept that future. <laughs> it can change. So we hope you'll subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or Amazon Music or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you want to chat to us, reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook, both under Neil Before Blog, or you can go direct to the website on neilbeforeblog.co.uk and leave comments under the podcast if you want to discuss Discovery, Star Trek, anything else. I've been your host, Craig, and my guest here has been Chris. Say goodbye, Chris. Goodbye, Chris. I'm just going to beam you out right now. So, energising. Keep your hands and feet inside the transporter beam at all times. And we hope you'll join us in the next Kneel Before Pod. <laughs>